Uh, Skype did perform an update. Okay. I don't know if that did it or the reboot did it or around no clue. One of one of the two. You do you even sound a little bit crisper. So weird. Now that's okay. I hear that sound, but that's probably like somebody messing with something. I'm I'm flipping through some cards at the moment. <laughs> oh, don't tut tut. <laughs> yeah, Kevin. I don't know what you're referring to. I'm always like very clear and professional at the recording. You're totally <laughs> professional. Exactly. We're totally recording. We act we actually are. I do have this recording at the moment. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that knows that real big guns never tire. I'm Rob. I'm Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, we are all coming to you on Skype because at the last time we planned our recording, our studio, i.e. Dennis's basement, had no air conditioning, although that has been fixed from what I understand. It's nice here now. Yeah, but Yay. it's but it's we're we're actually getting a heat wave moving through uh, the Kansas City area, so we decided to play it cool and stay home and do this remotely. So if we sound a little bit different, that's why. Rob said we're cool. We how, are. Uh, how how <laughs> we, hot we, is it in Kansas City? Just out of curiosity. Okay, for us it's a heat wave. For you, it's Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, is it 116 degrees? No. <laughs> Then it's not Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Ah, the sweet revenge for all of your winter taunting. Yeah, exactly. It's it's cyclical. My sympathy is, is, (laughs) my levels of sympathy are low for you, sir. (laughs) Yes. Fair enough. We would gladly welcome you back with open arms. (laughs) No, not not now. It's too humid. (laughs) You're not wrong. Uh, anyway, um, it's obviously it's been a, it's been about a month since we've all been recording together because we've been going to one event or another. Uh, last episode, I was a uh, flying monkey for me. And in the interim between the episode a month ago and now games workshop decided to drop apocalypse on us. Yay. Cause I think they announced it like the week after, like the week the episode went live. That it was up for pre-order and the or that it was coming for pre-order. They announced it like two weeks early. And then here it is. It's the thing. And we've <laughs> had a chance to play with it. So we're going to be talking about Apocalypse today. We'll also briefly mention the other, you know, I'm going right into news and new releases because the other new because Apocalypse was the big news and new release. And then the other new new release, other than uh the preview of some of the new sisters models. Yeah, the new that new squad looks cool. Yeah. I'm still concerned about base size, though. I'm, I keep thinking they're probably putting them on 30, 32 mils, which makes me sad. Oh, it's I 100% sure they're going to. Yeah, because they want to be able to give them more dynamic posing, and thus they're going to need to put them on wider bases. Although I never cease to be amazed that like uh, Skitari and such are still on 25 mils. So part small part of me has hope, but not much hope. The event exclusive or like the weekend exclusive one they did a couple weeks ago, was it on 32 mil is, or was it 25? I, it's on a 32, but it's also a yeah. decorative, a more decorative base. So it's eh. hard to tell if that's a stand, if that is 
it's the standard. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't want to read all decorative bases. <sighs> no, I no, but I, I mean, <laughs> looking at like when they released the squad mockups and stuff, like they all had like similar bases. They all have like similar similar stuff on it. So I, I it's going to be thirty two mils. They're wearing power armor. It's going to be thirty two mil. Yeah, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to have to order a full new set of thirty two mil bases because the one thing I discovered uh, with uh, the movement trays that we'll be talking about later uh, is that the resin bases I have aren't all like. Because they're all hand cast, they're not all exactly perfectly 25 mil. Some are a little bit larger, some are a little bit smaller. So getting like the, uh, the expander rings that would get it up to a 32, 32 mil base isn't necessarily going to work. Cause so you're consistent. saying that you've been cheating with your movement with that army for the whole time? Ever so slightly, yes. By like fractions of a millimeter. Yes, I'm a terrible person by not using a micrometer yes. to measure my movement. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but besides the new sisters that have been previewed and the, uh, the coming of Apocalypse, uh, we also got the Chaos Knight book, uh, in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, well, this will not be a full, uh, review of it yet because I'd like to actually get a chance to kind of play around with it and wait for the, the or the two week errata to come out and things like that, um, but I will say it's interesting that uh, Questor Traitorous Knights don't have as many options. Yeah, I mean they have th- the same number of model options as regular knights, but they don't have the same number of faction options because instead, while they have like knight houses, like traitor knight houses in here. There are no rules for them. Instead, they just break them down by you're either an iconoclast, which means you are working for your – like it's a house that just works for itself in its own dark glory. Or you're a, uh infernal class, which means you – or infernal house, which means you work with the dark mechanicus. And instead of having a whole bunch of different house traits, they just have those two. Honestly, that's probably better. I, I I absolutely think it's better. I think I mean for the regular Imperial Knights at this point the genie's out of the bottle and they're not going to take those away, but I kind of think they should. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I mean because no, that's one of the biggest balance issues with that book is that there's some of those house traits that you know the house the house abilities that are just way too good, or especially way too good with particular knight builds. Yeah, and well, and they allow you to full. They allow you to more easily field knights as like its own army with all of its own support stuff with it. And if you take some of that away, then maybe you'll just see them show up as you know. Like I really get the the idea that in the the Chaos Knights books, this is designed to be just an allied faction. This is designed to be a Lord of War choice for your Death Guard or for your Thousand Sons or for whatever. It's not really designed to be its own codex, and I'm fine with that. I mean, it's playable as its own codex for sure. Sure, but. yeah. But like, it's it's designed and it's synergized in ways to like, I think, not be played by itself as much, which which is good. I like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, otherwise, yeah, it's you know, it, it, some of the side effects of of streamlining that down is. There's fewer stratagems to keep track of, and so fewer to abuse. Uh, there's half the relics. That's the big one. The relics in the Imperial Knights Codex are just way too much. Yeah. 
And what one thing I did think was interesting is that uh, Chaos Knights do not have the option to be marked in any way. Yeah, that's the one disappointing thing that I saw was, especially now that, as we talked about when we did the Chaos data sheets, marks don't do anything. Mm-hmm. So it would have been really cool if you were one of the... In- so maybe do it like only for the Infernal. Um, yeah, the Infernal houses, the ones that are dedicated to the Chaos Gods themselves. Mm-hmm. Let them take marks. Doesn't do anything except potentially, you know... I would say it just gives the mark and then like the ability then... Heck, there's one of the abilities or something that that allows them to like use leadership for a bubble of like character, you know, models around it that are chaos. Do something like that where it's like, ah, you take it marker corn with the, you know friendly corn models within six inches get to reroll ones on uh, hit rolls or something. You know, just give it some ability like that, which would which could have could have potentially opened up a little bit more flavor. I think without being too abusive, mm-hmm. but yeah. We've complained about marks enough in the the previous episodes. Yeah, (laughs) and and really, the thing for me on marks is really more tied to the like ITC faction thing, which is something that the GW should not really concern themselves with. So I don't blame them. But it's like it would be really cool to be able to take like a Nurgle Knight or Slanesh Knight, and Yeah. yeah, the keyword doesn't do anything other than you know possibly involve some targeting. But yeah, the cool list building and being able to play like. Being able to play like a pure god faction and still be able and st- like use that as your your common keyword and and be able to go for like you know pure slanesh and, and there are four relics in here one for each of the chaos gods so like there's mm-hmm. the coronate target the zinchian pyrothrone the putrid carapace of nurgle and the quicksilver throne of slanesh so it's like even if those rel- like if you could just take one and maybe that relic gives it the appropriate keyword that would i think mm-hmm. that would be fine that would that would be enough for me to be able to just like drop in a knight it's like okay you take this knight you take this relic and now you're that keyword well, and it's not appreciably different than Mechanicus being able to drop in a Mechanicus Knight, right? You know, as, as drop one in as a you know as a Lord of War without breaking your faction. But again, really that's cool an ITC thing. That. Yeah, that. Well, I mean, I mean, just even within the book itself in the Codex, it's a Codex choice where it's like, boom, this you can slot this in as a Lord of War, and you're still Battleforged. You're still, you know, it isn't. It doesn't have to take up like an Allied detachment. You could put it in, you know. Like, just things like that, like that. That's really cool. That's like ah, I've been. It would have been neat to be able to do that with the god specific stuff, but I'm sure there's reasons why they didn't do it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, like everything in here, pretty much. You know, there's a lot of analogs, obviously, and they even tell you like what kits. Like, <laughs> there's the new uh, like Night Despoiler and Night Rampager, or maybe it's not the. That's the Knight, Desecrator. The Desecrator. Yeah, the Desecrator and the Rampager. The Despoiler is the classic Renegade Knight where you can equip it with pretty much anything. But otherwise, they tell you, like, oh, if you're going to build a War Dog, you need to buy the Armager Kit. If you want to buy a, a Tyrant, it needs to be like a Castellan or a, a Valiant Kit. But I mean, you've got all the same War Gear options. And then the Desecrator, that's got the Laser Destructor. And it's basically their equivalent of the Knight Perceptor. Where Although I think it's actually better, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's got a better gun than the than the Knight Perceptor. And, but the, the Taskmaster ability is very similar to the uh, mm-hmm. the Mentor ability that uh, the Perceptor has. Uh, the Rampager is 
basically their gallant equivalent. And, of course, the new night models are out, which you can... I mean, they de- definitely riffed off of the uh, the old Chaos Knight design that Forge World did, where it's got, oh, like, yeah. teeth coming off of the carapace and stuff like that. Well, the thing I like about it, too, and it's just such a very simple design choice, but just making the legs different, you know, adding that extra, like, one joint in the legs just gives it that, like, oh, no, this is a Twisted Chaos thing. Like, at a glance, you can look at it and go... Nope. Okay, that's chaos. I like that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit more animalistic. Mm-hmm. So no, I I like the new designs. Um, otherwise, like I said, we'll do a we'll do a full review in a few episodes. But it's basically the it's the Renegade Knight pamphlet with a few more options, mm-hmm. which I I think is fine. I don't know if it necessarily warranted a whole print book i think it this this codex could have easily been a white dwarf article yeah but i'm glad they did go ahead and print it like just from the simplicity of like not having to track down additional issues of white dwarf and just making it available like i i like that it's out there in that yeah no that's fair and besides white dwarf is too busy doing blood ravens next so right uh, but, uh, yeah, other than that, yeah, everything has been Apocalypse and all the accessories for Apocalypse, including boxes of D12s and movement trays and extra cards and uh, and a whole new website with uh, a lot of the stuff that you'll need to play for free on the website, which is really cool. But again, we'll be talking about that more during our main segment. Uh, so... Uh, We'll just switch over to some listener mail, and we'll go through our listener mail, and when we finish with that, we'll tell you how you can get your mail right on the air, and then we'll get to Talking Apocalypse. Uh, So as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and as I said, uh, after this segment's over, we'll tell you how you can get your letter read on the air. So our first uh, letter is from Dave Clark. Dave writes, Hello, preferred podcasters. Dave Clark here. I met Rob and Kevin at last year's Renegade Friendly. I was running the Halloween Harlequins. Rob, you played my buddy Tyler in a Death Guard mirror match, which that was a fun game because we were both running not exactly, but very close to identical lists. And to we basically had to decide who who had the real Typhus. Which was always <laughs> which was fun. I uh, hope to see and we basically played it until somebody got seven kills. Because, like, once once somebody's got seven kill points, that's Nurgle's number. We're going to call it there. <laughs> so he says, he continues, I came across an issue this weekend when I took the Inari out for the first time. Ivrain happened to take a couple of Thunderhammer hits to the face. The Vizark was next to her, so I wanted to use his Warden of Ivrain ability. To me, it reads like all the other Lookout Sir type abilities. Each time the, or the Vizark soaks up each wound at the price of a mortal wound. However, my buddy, yes, that Tyler, uh, had a different take. The ability reads, each time Ivrain loses a wound. So he was saying the Vizark would have to take nine mortal wounds for the nine damage. I think he took three mortal wounds because Ivrain suffered three wounds, but I didn't want to argue all day, so I let it go. What do you guys think? Thanks again, Dave Clark. Uh, let's see. So I want to see exactly how the Vizark's ability is worded. Each time Ivrain loses a wound whilst the Vizark is within three inches, you can choose for the Vizark to shield Ivrain. If you do, roll 1d6. On a 2+, Ivrain does not lose the wound, but the Vizark suffers a mortal wound. So, comparing that to uh, Savior Protocols for tactical drones, it is actually worded a little bit differently. Savior Protocols, if a Sept Infantry or Sept Battlesuit unit within 
three inches of a friendly SEP drones unit is wounded by an enemy attack, roll a D6 on a 2+, plus. allocate that wound to the drones unit instead of the target. If you do, the drone suffers a mortal wound instead of normal damage. So I guess the thing here would be would be the verbiage. Yeah, so so yeah, so when the model is, you know, a, a, a hit lands and then a wound is scored, the model is wounded. At that point, you allocate the wound and then the damage gets converted to whatever. And that if it's a thunder hammer, it would be the D three or a mortal wound or et cetera. So I would say that it's you get wounded once the the blow lands, the damage is irrelevant at that point. Well, okay, so here's the thing. There is a difference, and I, I think some, some of this is because the terminology is not as clear as it needs to be because it's t- the same word used two different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the act of wounding. Yes. And, and the damage that you take is in wounds. Yes, and... <laughs> That's where the that's where the like, confusion it, comes. It should be it, everything should have HP. Yeah, <laughs> instead of wounds. Yeah, yeah, because then it would be much more clear. Because if you change that, it's like because yeah, because as you said, Kevin, Savior Protocol says when a unit is wounded, and that if you look at the attack process, it's like you roll to see if you hit, you roll to see if you wound. Did you wound? Yes. Then, like you said, you allocate the wound, and then you go to saves, and then if you fail the save, then you go to damage, and you lose wounds equal to the damage. So mm-hmm. that's the second definition, that losing a wound. Of, and, uh, yeah, so in this case, because the Vizarch is worded, uh, each time Yvrain loses a wound, we have gone past the process of being wounded, failing a save... Now I'm actually taking damage. So in this case, yes, if Evrain lost nine wounds, the Vizarch would have to roll a d6 for each wound, and on a two-up, take a mortal wound in, in her place. Hmm. As opposed to the one, atta- let's say if there was an attack that did nine wounds, which Jeebus. Um, <laughs> yeah, if it worked like Savior Protocols, it would be per successful wounding hit which is yeah so like if somebody hit with like three thunder hammers and did like just a flat three damage each time then if it was worded the way savior protocols is that's three hits that would be three rolls to shunt a damage onto the vizark which would actually be better but in this case it's no if rain rain has already failed the save he can't he's just taking the damage for her so Yes, I think, uh, sorry, Dave, I think Tyler was right in this case. Because it is not a lookout, it is not the same, worded the same way as other lookout sir style abilities. Yeah, and that's the, that's the one thing with this edition that you have to be careful of. Since every rule is its own rule, you have to read every rule, and it can be useful to compare to other rules, but you have to read how each rule is worded. And there's, yeah, and- with no standards, it's kind of just up to each one. Yeah, the only way to use other rules is to kind of compare and contrast, but you can't assume that they work. You you have to assume that every rule that is worded similarly is worded differently. Mm-hmm. Which, it would be really nice if they had a rule book that had some of these very standardized rules broken into univer- a page of universal rules. Yeah. We'll be talking about that later. Uh <laughs> Uh, moving on, we've got a couple of interesting letters. Defenses of the Sunshark Bomber. 
<laughs> we had two people write in and 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 uh, defend the Sun Shark. So I'm going to go ahead and read both of those together. So the first one is from Sean Donahue, and he writes, Hey, Rob, I just listened to your Tau Codex Doctor episode and had a thought. You played against my son, which, yeah, he was one of the people he, like, came to Pulp Fiction and... Uh, yeah, I got a chance to play him. And he used the Tau Bomber then and has ne- never failed to field it since. It surely is overcosted, but it has been the MVP in many games. He starts it in his back corner, flies over a unit on the flank, then turns and runs over a second, ending in the middle of the board, usually in the opponent's side of the table. From there, options change a lot, but third bombs are usually weaker as target selection gets worse and units are smaller. But the bombs kill things dead. Let a- left alone, the plane can rack up a fairly large kill count and is uniquely the only model in 40k that does its work through bombing. The other bombers as you say, are gunboats with a singular bomb. This is a carpet bomber, and it forces you to deal with it when you would maybe rather be shooting the Riptide bearing down on you. I think maybe just a points reduction would be great, but otherwise, it's a truly unique model and playstyle. I'd be sad if it changed too much. And then we have another letter from Ben in the UK. Ben writes, Hi, Rob. I really liked your analysis of the Tau Empire data sheets. But I think you're wrong about the Sunshark Bomber. I own one, and I have to say, like you, I was a little underwhelmed when I first looked at it. However, I would like to make the case that it doesn't need to be changed and is a viable unit in its own right. First of all, I would like to point out that you missed in your coverage that it can take a second missile pod. So if we run down its weapons, four ion rifles, two missile pods, marker light, two seeker missiles, pulse bomb. Now, if we consider it without marker light support at 15 inches, then it has 12 strengths... 12 strength, 7 shots, AP minus 1, 8 with 1 damage, and 4 with D3. Now, that isn't great against vehicles, but against tough multi-wound models like Wraith Guard, Terminators, or Crisis Suits, that can do some nice damage. And you have the Pulse Bomb to do more. Uh, just like any Tau unit with the right marker light support, it can become a beast. The key for this is getting at least 4 marker lights. We tend to skip from 1 to 5 because the other powers don't really matter that too much to the army, but they do here. Four allows you to move and fire heavy weapons without penalty. Suddenly that heavy D3 shots on the iron rifle isn't such a liability. And if you got to five marker lights, then it isn't at all. At 30 inches with four marker lights, you now have four D3, strength eight, AP one, two damage shots, four, strength seven, AP one, D3 damage shots. As you have more than two marker lights, the two seeker missiles are now viable to use. So two strength AP eight or two strength eight, AP two, D6 damage shots. For the first turn, a marker light at regular ballistic skill, a pulse bomb, at which all of which the opponent gets no cover from and you reroll ones. It's even better with five marker lights as everything will be hitting on threes. Most how units don't really benefit from marker lights beyond the first marker light, but this unit does. I found that it tends to die pretty quickly after the first round of shooting. It still isn't a great unit, but I really don't think it's that bad. Keep up the great work on the show. Best regards, Ben from Amersham, UK. Yeah, Rob, explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I deny nothing. I, 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 no, I, I still, I, I like the fact that it's even like, well, it still needs like a point drop or it's still not a great unit, but. <laughs> like the big thing I took away from this, and, and it's not to say that, that's not to, to discount either one of theirs, uh, usage of it or their experiences with it but you're still talking about putting four or five marker lights on a unit that you're also shooting at like that's or you know lining it up in such a way that you get like the perfect run of hitting multiple units like well sure if you build your entire army around a unit you can get usage out of it oh yeah but is that the best way to do it i i would argue that no it still isn't (laughs) yeah and it's like this thing okay it has like like with uh, Sean's letter, you know, it works as a carpet bomber. That's true, but as he also points out, you get diminishing returns with that. Mm-hmm. 
and you're probably only going to get maybe two bombs off the whole game. And the bombs are the bombs are decent. And again, you know, he's, he's talking about basically using it as a distraction flyer that will get some work done, but you have to build. You have to basically assume that it's just going to run up as a decoy while you have actual big things doing real damage. Mm-hmm. And I think, and then to Ben's point. Yeah, and I'm agreeing with you. That, yes, the thing has the possibility to take a decent amount of weapons, but there are better choices to put out that level of damage output that don't need four market like you know that don't need four to five marker lights worth of support. Yeah, I mean like, that's not to say that it's not that it's a completely useless unit. And I don't even th- I I think we actually said that. It's that it's easily the better of the two flyer units. Oh yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> so it's not that it's a useless unit. It's just that it needs something, and maybe it is just a points reduction. You know, because like I said, using it as a distraction flyer, it's not a bad strategy. There's other codexes that use that, but at the points and how much like resources that have to go into it, it becomes a, a a very risky proposition. Well, yeah, and uh, looking at the point cost for you know. For a flyer in a similar but much better Im- implementation of that role, the the Void Raven bomber for Drukari, you know, it's slightly hardier and has much better weaponry all around. And granted, it fits its weaponry fits the you know the Drukari army just like the weaponry on the Sun Shark fits the Tau army, but one of them is a much bigger threat and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I would probably because what would you figure it was about 160, 170 points for both of those. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean it's like in the, it's somewhere in the 150s, 160s. And honestly, I think if the Sun Shark was more in the 120s to 130s, and you know, maybe take away the option to have the second missile pod, or maybe you know leave that on there if you want to put the extra points into it, but. Uh, it, it it's a vehicle that only works. I mean, it it only works if you've got appropriate marker light support. Kind of like the Skyray, which is another vehicle that you just don't see people running anymore. Mm-hmm. There was a brief shining moment when a lot of people were running flyers, and the Skyray was awesome. And <laughs> then it wasn't anymore because it just did not have the damage output, and it was completely marker light dependent. And unfortunately, I think the Sun Shark is kind of the same way. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like I, I get that it can it can totally be useful. And if you've found a strategy, like any any unit, any army can, it, in the hands of the right general who knows how to appropriately use the tools, and even more more importantly, can confuse their opponents who don't know how to deal with a particular thing. So like most people never see Sun Shark bombers. So when somebody when they run against one for the first time, that like, do I even need to deal with this? How do mm-hmm. I deal with this? That you know, uh, thinking back to Flying Monkey, uh, I talked with uh, Dave about uh, Tony Thibault's list because he got a chance to play Tony, and it was one of those lists. Like, you look at it on paper, and it's like this list probably shouldn't work, but Tony knows how to play it inside and out, and he's a fantastic mm-hmm. player. Uh, or there was a Space Marine list that. Again, by all means, probably shouldn't have worked. And it made it to like the top four table or like top two tables. 
Yeah, no, there's definitely something to be said about knowing your list, being knowing how it works, and kind of coming at it from a different angle. Heck, just bringing flyers right now is kind of coming at it from a different angle. There's not, like you mentioned before, there was this brief shining moment where there were all these flyers, so anti-flyer defense became a thing, and you know now you don't see a lot of anti-flyer defense because you don't see a lot of flyers. So bringing bringing one of these might be really, really well, you know, do really, really well for a bit um, until people realize and know how to counter it. Right. I mean, the you still see the uh, the um, Eldar, like the flying Eldar circus. Yep. But but that's really then, like the only one. That's really the only one. And even then, with the way the rules are right now for match play, that's a dangerous proposition to take. Yeah, I mean, you're putting you're banking a lot in your hard to hit and your mm-hmm. ally tag bonuses because uh, if they get a hit in on you, you're going to start losing really fast. Or if they go after the few things you have on the ground, game's over. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's – but splashing in, you know, there's – you know, splashing in a couple of uh, flyers, some are – you know, armies can have a real difficult time dealing with it. I still – like, I think the uh, the Dark Talon for the uh, Dark Angels is a really solid flyer. And it's one that uh, when you see somebody using, like, two or three of them, you can use them very effectively and they can do a lot of damage. Uh and I think you know, yes, I think the Sun Shark is one of the one of those cases where, in the hands of someone who is practiced with it and who has figured out like can build a list around using it, then yes, it's probably effective. But as you said, the same can be said of a lot of units that are otherwise considered subpar. But mm-hmm. also, there's not a rush out to get Sun Sharks on the table right now. Now, like nobody's really pushing to you know there, there's no big like competitive push to for people buying up sun sharks uh, as far as like towel that said if uh one of the you know sean or ben or any one of our listeners want to like ride the sun shark to like a gt win you can change the meta yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right next up a letter from dustin brown again with some uh, feedback on the tau episode dustin writes hey all it was good seeing you all at midwest conquest yet again uh the friendly was a lot of fun and i hope you run it again next year with some minor tweaks which i believe we are planning to and mm-hmm. we are working on a uh coming up with a unified format we'll give you more details as we get closer probably to renegade open uh, listening to your Tau Datasheet Doctors yesterday, I have to admit I did have some flashbacks when you started discussing re-implementing Jump Shoot Jump. That mechanic was one of the mo- many horrible experiences with Tau in 7th, particularly against my guard. I won't list the other infractions. Uh, jump Shoot Jump meant Tau could outrange a lot of Imperial weapons and then run and hide. It made for very limited interactions, because even if you got close to an assault, they quickly vanished again, too. See Action Economy Inari. Although it would be great to see Crisis Suits more frequently on the board again, this ability should be restricted in some form, such as once per game, example, Grey Knight Interceptor Shunts, or stratagem-based, one CP seems fair. As for drones, they do suck the life out of things when playing against Tau. I was thinking of many various ways to combat this, such as changing the role from a 2-up to a 3 or 4-up based on the size of the model. The larger the model, the higher the number. That's a lot of space to get the exact intercept of a weapon. However, I think the simplest and most elegant would just be to require the drone to be in between the firing model and the savior protocol model. This would stop people hiding drones behind line of sight and still receiving the benefit without worrying about small arms fire clearing them out. Anyway, that's my two cents from a player who doesn't want to relive the Riptide wing 
Fighting or Eldar Tau shenanigans of 7th. As for suggestions for what's next, I'm not a Necron player, but those guys could probably do with a hand, too. Destroyer Spam is also boring to face off against. I'd love to see more flayed ones on the table, though. Keep up the good work. Hopefully see a few of you all again at Siege World this year. Dustin. As as far as the Necron one, man, we're not miracle workers. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's there's limits. <laughs> I you know I've seen some Necrons doing okay. Necrons yeah. are nec- There are Necron builds that aren't destroyer spam that do okay. So, uh, but again, it's one of those cases where there are units in that army that just don't get taken, and, I, and I for good reason. That, I fear that the Necron episode though would basically be hey remember that seventh edition codex Let's just do that again <laughs> so uh but yeah no, it's an interesting point on the jump shoot jump because it is an action economy thing there does need to be some restriction on it and i actually really like the idea of it being like a stratagem that way you could you're limited to a unit that can do it you know or a character that can do it like once per round and that's it um and that would kind of eliminate some of the more egregious uh, frustration of playing that army. I could see that. And, you know, it's one of those cases where you have plenty of units that have, this would open it up to more than just crisis suits. I mean, you could key the stratagem off of like the, the crisis suit keyword, but we have plenty of units that have the jetpack keyword that does nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's a keyword. So that way, like stealth suits could also jump, shoot, jump, uh riptides i believe could but like a talonar or a uh broadside could not yep um, yeah i i like the jump shoot jump because it was a uniquely tau thing i never as a tau player admittedly i never thought it was too egregious because you weren't able to do it with your entire army um but i like i, said, I understand that it could be frustrating playing against that yeah and, and, and yes, it, yeah, it, it does allow you to outrange number of weapons, but also, again, the thing about jump, shoot, jump is if you were a, a player who was playing a primarily static army, like a lot of guard armies were back in the day, having a jump, playing against a jump, shoot, jump unit that could just pop out a, you know, pop out from behind a line sight blocker, take pot shots at you and then jump back. Yes, it was frustrating, but you were playing a static army against an army that's going to take advantage of mobility. That's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Um, and admittedly, we find those same shenanigans to be annoying when uh, Eldar do it with like uh, you know fire and fade on Dark Reapers, for example. So I can I, I can understand why it would be a a pain to deal with. And so yeah, maybe making it a strategy. Maybe maybe that's all all that you would need is a jump shoot jump or jetpack jetpack burst move mm-hmm. stratagem of some sort. And yeah, I think a CP, I wouldn't charge more than that, but it would just having that option available for just for crisis suits or just for jetpack suits would be enough. Yeah. It would definitely make the army just feel like it plays more like it used to, um, you know, just to have a little bit of that flavor back in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually on on the the drones, I, while you were reading that, I actually had a thought, and maybe this is maybe this is insanely over. Well, maybe this is still too powerful. But he was kind of thinking about like putting the drones like they have to be in line. How about you do some sort of like a reverse sniper rule with drones that they have to be targeted, like if they're the closest, they have to be targeted or something. Where like you you're basically 
effectively like allowing you to kind of like bubble wrap like character you know characters under certain wounds whatever if they're the closest they have to be shot at first i could see that like it would encourage people to like run units of like yeah basically screen everything with drones uh honestly there's uh there's precedent for having you know requiring line of requiring them to be in the path of line of sight because i'm thinking grot shields work the same way yeah because, I mean, the Grot Shield stratagem specifically says, like, they have to be, cl- like, in line of sight and closer to the firing unit than the unit of orcs that are being, t- or, you know, the, of orcs that are being targeted. So I wouldn't have a problem with that. I, you know, the, the shield drone, the Savior Protocol's ability is kind of a nice um, abstraction, but I can see why, yeah, but it definitely is an issue he said as he was getting ready to take 17 shield drones to protect one battlesuit. I mean, in all fairness, that battlesuit's like, what, 1,000 points? 1177. Yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so uh, I don't want it to die. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to burn 17 shield drones to protect one thing. <laughs> I don't feel bad about that in the slightest. Of course, at the same time, you wouldn't have a problem with when you set up those 17 drones, putting them in front. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, but I'd rather not because the town is really good at blocking line of sight to the <laughs> shield drones so that they can't get shot out first. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm going to be playing competitive. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to game this as much yeah. as I can. I admit I'm part of the problem in this case. You're, you're playing in the competitive event. You're taking a town R and 17 children's. I don't know how competitive it'll be. No, it's but. not going to be. Okay. I'm going to play in a competitive <laughs> style, but not with a competitive <laughs> list necessarily. However, I'm looking forward to seeing how many nights I can pull off the table each turn. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were looking forward to playing me in one of the later rounds. I am looking forward to shooting your Orion out of the sky on turn one, if I can. If you go first. If I go first, that thing's Titanic. It's going down. <laughs> assuming I, I'm assuming it has, what, like a four-up invuln? I think something like that. I'd have to look it up. Because, I mean, it's it it's custode, so it's going to have an invuln save. Although apparently the new hotness for custodes is their grav tanks. Yeah. Yeah, the Forge World grav tanks. Like uh, Jeremiah Pettit's list at Flying Monkey, which he took, like, he was on the top table last round, uh, had like five or six of them. Yeah. No, they're they look really nice good. too. Oh, they mm-hmm. look beautiful. But yeah, they are, they're apparently a, like, they are the killer unit from custodes. And a lot of people are ad- thinking that maybe they're a little, you know, they're a little Forge World balanced, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. I know exactly Forge World Balance. (laughs) (laughs) Forge World Balance, it's either terrible or really terrible. It's terrible one way or the other, but very rarely in the middle. Like, they've here's the thing. They've always been good. The problem is that uh, there used to be Castellans on the table. And when a Knight Castellan shoots at those things, it blows it up. Like, it kills it in one go. Now there's far fewer things that can just one shot them. So they become really good. <laughs> this is true. And uh, yeah, so something saying there's cause and effect. I know oh. it's weird. This weird living in our, like a living rule set. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of fun. I like it. 
All right, next up is from Simon Neville, and this is a follow-up to a letter he wrote to us in December about uh, narrative play and how much uh, winning or losing a narrative mission in a campaign should allow the winner to affect things going forward. Uh, So Simon writes, Thank you for discussing my question on your show. Thought I'd thank you again and update you on how this panned out. Uh, We collected all the mission cards available together and rolled two randomly. The previous losing player picks which one, but the previous winning player gets to write the story as to why. This is where you write the history books and make your side look good, uh, etc. A surprisingly painful edge to losing previously, which doesn't affect the outcome of this game. The previous winning player can then consider all the randomly decided elements mentioned in the selected mission, which attacker, defender, deployment zone, first turn, etc. They can choose to control and decide to... The result for either one or two of those elements that would ordinarily be randomly decided. If they choose just one, great, just crack on. If they choose to dictate two, then the previous losing player gets to decide one of the ordinarily randomly decided elements as well. This means that the game has a narrative written by the previous victory, previously victorious, victorious player. In addition to the reward for winning, can be in control and influence of the next mission, but nothing that a die roll could not have delivered anyways, so it stays balanced. Also, there's no complications to this. This is as simple as remembering who lost and who won last battle. Hope this helps you guys and your listeners in their campaign games. All the very best. Uh, Simon Neville, Droitwich Spa, UK. Uh, That's actually a very interesting way of doing it is allowing a little bit of control, but then also allowing that if you decide to take a lot of control, the other player gets some control as well. Yeah, no, that's very neat. I I, I especially like the... uh... Winner writes the uh, writes the history books aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which for a narrative campaign, I mean that that is classic and awesome. So so thank you, Simon. That uh, thanks for letting us know how, what you decided on. And uh, yeah, I think that would be a that'd be a very interesting way. Like if you were doing a tree campaign, because a lot of like tree campaigns will have like uh, attacker. You know, like if you win, you do this mission. If you lose, you do this mission. Or um, having the uh, the attacker gets this benefit but instead of having a benefit going in and thus skewing things more you just get to like it it's kind of like playing against a ringer mhm all right and then uh, next up is a letter from Drew Davenport who won our Black Templar uh army raffle which I talked to Steve the guy that runs the local GW store and he was like oh yeah Drew's been in he's he really loves the army and he's like okay now I need to buy this and this and this <laughs> and like we kind of just like excellent just as planned so I'm glad the army is in somebody else's hands and they're having fun with it. Anyway, Drew writes, Hello, preferred enemies. It's Drew again. I hope life has returned to normalcy after Midwest Conquest. I have a question and idea for discussion for you guys. First, I'm thinking of getting into the 3D printing space for terrain for 40K, Sigmar, and Star Wars Legion, as well as D&D miniatures, but I'm not sure where to start looking at where to start on looking at the printers and ink spools filaments etc the plastics Uh, seeing the necron and tau tables got me really thinking about it Uh, and second while doing painting i popped on the latest tabletop minions video talking about a great way to better know your army is to find a friend and play each other's armies link below to the like and we'll link the video on the show notes it got me thinking about maybe a fun casual slash friendly event idea everybody brings an army and all you would need to play it and each round everybody plays a random army with some extra time between rounds to go over the army and stratagems i know it would take a lot of trust between all the players but i think it could be a cool maybe three game event of trying something new and everybody learning together as the game progresses uh that's all for this letter hope your summers goes well and best of luck at show me showdown keep up the good work drew uh to the second point that is what we do on new year's that is our new mm-hmm. year's party every year yep. 
Um, and, and that's how we've kind of gotten to know the armies because I play an army, but I've learned Tau from playing Rob's Tau. I've learned like Grey Knights from playing Richard's Grey Knights. So it is a really good way to learn other people's armies. Yeah, but it does require that, you know, especially when it comes to handling other people's minis and making sure everything gets back. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I don't know if I would recommend it for a random event, an invite only event, maybe, but amongst a circle of friends, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fa- it is All, a fantastic. Although I, I have, I've seen that Tabletops Minions uh, episode that Drew is, is referencing. And, and one thing that is different about what, uh, Uncle Adam was specifically talking about and what we do is you're playing against your own army. Hmm. Cause we, cause we always try and line it up. So we're not playing against our own armies. Right. True. Okay. And that's, and, and this is a way that like you can actually, cause while we're all playing, we're playing, a new army against somebody else who's playing a new army, but we're not seeing somebody else. We're not paying attention to the other game. So we don't necessarily see what a different player is doing with our army. Hmm. And getting us a new perspective on what things an army might do or different strategies to take with said army, whether or not those are, good things to do or bad things to do or things to avoid. Like that, that's a thing that, that he was talking about is like, you actually get an opportunity to play against, against your army and see somebody else playing it. Or you mean seeing someone else attempting to play it because (laughs) attempting. Yes. Yeah, I, I can I can see both sides of that because on one hand I think it is very it is very useful to be able to see your see the army you play in somebody else's hands and see wh- what they do with the strategy and you know granted they're going to think of things that maybe you didn't because you've been because it's easy to get locked into kind of a tunnel vision of okay this unit does this thing this unit does this thing right uh, and. A lot of times, like the, I know the re- main reason why we don't like play against our own ar- armies is to try and alleviate like a, the advantage of like your opponent knows your army better than you as you're <laughs> playing. But right. yes. again, in the games that we're playing, we're also playing armies that we don't necessarily know that great. So it it's kind of six of one half a dozen of another. So yeah, like I, I don't know that that advantage of knowing your opponent's army is necessarily as, as great, but like specifically in a learning experience, you know, I mean like after a few turns, you could like take a break and like talk about what you learned about each other's armies so far and mm. maybe move forward better. No, I think I I could definitely see see that working. And that that would be, and actually that would be really good. Like if you're doing tournament practice or something like that, that would actually be a really good way to practice is to try to beat your own army. Yeah. Yeah. And, absolutely. And, 
and, and see what's how somebody else uses it. But yeah, I'm always kind of concerned about that. Like it, depending on how well, you know, your army, you might also like know the weakness. Like I know exactly the, the, the thing to, you know, I know the linchpin of the army or I know exactly what tactic to exploit. So it's, you know, how how reliable a test that's going to be but i still i love the pro- the practice of playing you know trading off armies and and playing another army to to learn it to just become just generally familiar like it do- doesn't necessarily mean to be like an in-depth lesson but just to have a feel for like what does this army do what what is its cuz it's one thing to talk about it a lot but it's another thing to actually have to play it yeah. As far as uh, Drew's first question, that's all you, Kevin. Uh, that yes. may be one you want to take to take private with him, because yeah. three D printing is a wide tar- uh, topic at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I know this isn't going to help because obviously this doesn't go out live. Uh, today's the end of Prime Day. There were a bunch of three D printers that were on pretty good discounts. Uh, either on Amazon or through like the company's websites. So what I would recommend uh, just as kind of a general and Drew, I'll reach out and answer more specifics, but uh, other people also asked this when we were, you know, at the event. So I figured it's good to kind of just throw out some of the, the generalities. YouTube is great. There are a bunch of tech YouTube channels that explain the pros and cons of different, uh, Different designs, different creators, different manufacturers, different types of 3D printers. If you're starting out for like what you're wanting to do with terrain and not like super detailed minis, a filament thread uh, fed 3D printer, uh, FDM filament thread uh, 3D printer is the one that you want to go with. You can get a starting model for that for under $200. You can get a really, really nice model for under like $500. If you go with like a resin printer, they start at like seven or eight hundred dollars and the material is much more expensive and it requires a lot of extra cleanup and things like that. So I would go with an FDM printer. As far as the manufacturers, both of mine are Creality's. I really like them. The Ender 3 is a really solid under two hundred dollars starting printer, but any of them work as long as you get my preference is that you get one with a heated bed so you can um so you can print different materials, but also the adhesion will help a little bit better and get one with a dual gantry because if it's just a one arm printer, they tend to be unbalanced and unlevel themselves a lot. You are going to be fighting a nonstop losing war to keep your bed balanced and keep your prints going correctly. And having the, the second uh, gantry arm will help that you're still going to have to fight it and basically relevel every single time you print, but that's just part of the process. Yeah. I've been following somebody on Instagram who has been doing like uh resin, like he's actually got one of those resin printers and mm-hmm. uh, for doing like, he's been printing out like battle tech minis, like yeah, from like the-, the 3d models from like mech warrior online and printing those out. And yeah, it's weird seeing the, how the resin comes out where it, it looks all, gr- all soft and goopy and he's actually got like a UV rig for making it cure. Yeah. It, the whole – like I haven't done any resin printing. That's a level a level or two above where I'm at with the 3D printer. I mean that's um, reaching pro level basically. Like you yeah. are pr- you're, you're printing out professional pieces. So Yeah. 
But uh, if you're just wanting to print terrain and stuff, any of those like starting FDMA printers will um, or FDM printers will uh, will work to get you started. And uh, you can get you can once you dial in the settings, you can start turning out pretty decent looking terrain pieces and and uh, buildings and stuff pretty cheaply. Um, and then on Amazon for the PLA or for the for the filament, there's a couple different types of it. PLA is the one I use because it's biodegradable and it's a little bit cheaper. Uh, ABS does give off fumes. So if you have a fume hood, that's fine, but most people aren't going to have that. So I would go with the PLA because it's, it's, uh, made of like vegetable oil. So it just, it'll, uh, it'll biodegrade if you have extra waste and stuff like that. It is lower melting point temperature. So for example, if you, uh, 3d print something and then like set it out on your balcony and let it out there for when it's 116 degrees, you wind up with a pile of, uh, plastic again. So I'm going to have to reprint that part today. It does not reform <laughs> itself into it a does spool, not. though. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It just forms a schlog. It's just like this big like ball that you then have to throw away. Well, yeah, I remember uh, Jason, you know, from Iron Halo, sent us like some of those signs that he he when he like was one of the first people I knew that was doing a lot of 3D printing terrain, and he sent them to us uh, in the summer from Oklahoma. And mm-hmm. when the box got here, they were already all like twisty strawed. So, and, and, and there's no recovering from that. Yeah. Other, other than a couple of times where, like today, where it was 116 degrees and I was stupid and left it on my porch. For the most part, I haven't had too bad, too big of a problem with it. Cause, uh, as long as you print it with like enough thickness or if it's, you know, buildings tend to be okay. But if you're printing like the billboards where it's just like one solid piece, yeah, those will warp. Yeah. Also, don't live somewhere where it could still be 116 degrees. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it hopefully it won't hit 116 here. Only people in Arizona would be crazy enough to 3D print in, in Arizona <sighs> in the summer. Well, just saying. But I, I, it oh. wasn't it wasn't my fault that I forgot it and left it out overnight. I left it out during the day. Are, are you sure on that? Uh, no, no, I'm pretty sure it's someone else's fault. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Drew, hopefully that uh, gives you some uh, some starting points and gives everybody some starting points. And yeah, if you want to reach out to us, and yeah, Kevin can definitely give you more mm-hmm. more fine tuned hints in uh, in direct message. Uh, and then finally, a letter from Cordell Trusty. Uh, Cordell writes, good afternoon. My name is Cordell Trusty, and I'm a tournament organizer in the Washington State area. Last year, I hosted the second annual Porter Potluck. This was a Warhammer 40k tournament, which allowed gamers to bring a dish as their ticket and play three rounds. The event raised over 20... That raised that the event raised over two hundred dollars for the Sharon Grange. The Washington Grange is an organization that helps the community. Sharon Grange Hall has helped with local 4-H and FFA programs. Grays Harbor. Grays Harbor Fair Community Outreach and the Oyster Feed. It's an organization I would like to help as it helped me as a child. I was able to go to camp as a kid twice in the early 90s. The prizes for the event came from local businesses. The biggest surprise came from my mother and her quilting group used the Grange for their club. They made a large... They made large amounts of cookies, pies, and other snacks, so each of the 20-plus people came away with something for attending. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of your podcast, and it would be awesome to see preferred enemies assisting by continuing the Porter Potluck for years to come. Below is links, uh, and then he provides some links to the uh, the BCP event and uh, information about the the Sharon Grange uh, area, the, the Washington Grange and the Sharon Grange Hall. Uh, so uh, Cordell is using his wargaming powers for awesome. And, Absolutely. Uh, Yes, so uh, we'll absolutely see what we can do to uh, help promote the event. So if you are in the Washington State area, uh, we will have details on the uh, on the show notes for this. Check out the links 
to that, uh, and it is available on BCP. So if you search for the Porter Potluck, uh, and yes, it is under the is listed under Best Coast Pairings as the third annual Porter Potluck. So check that out. Um, help raise some money for a good cause. And again, we always support people using their wargaming powers for awesome. And uh, helping a group that helped you is a fantastic way to do it. Yeah. That's actually a really cool, like, entry fee, too, to, like, hey, bring something for the potluck. Like, that's that's actually really cool. I like that a lot. <laughs> yes, that is very awesome. Also, uh, personal note, speaking of helping people, I want to do a personal shout-out to our friend. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's a fantastic painter. Uh, this one goes out to Alex Hunt. So a couple of weeks ago um, – I went to flying, you know, a couple weeks ago or so I was at flying monkey on the way down to Wichita. When I left Kansas city, the temperature was in the like high seventies, low eighties. And that was fine. And it was that way for the majority of the trip down to Wichita, about an hour out of Wichita, the weather temperature spiked outside to nearly 100. It actually did hit like 102 by the time I got there. And it was that time that my car's air conditioning decided to go out. And the trip back, fortunately, the temperature had dropped by about 20 to 30 degrees. So, and I was driving in the evening, so the drive back wasn't too bad. But my air conditioning repair ended up being about $1,200. And we had a couple of other things that either we had just gone through or were just getting ready to do that we had like, were like already, you know, dedicated to doing family wise, that was basically like I could pay for the AC to get fixed, but it would basically break us. And so I put my, uh, my next army project, which was my blood, An- my premier's blood angels up for sale. Uh, some of you who follow us on the Facebook page probably saw that post. Alex contacted me that morning and said, so do you take donations? And I'm like, yes, I am not too proud to take free money to fix my air conditioning because I have two kids and we have terrible heat tolerance and we will die if we try to drive anywhere without the air conditioning this summer. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to offer you some money and you pull that many models out of what you're selling because you shouldn't have to give up all your all your armies to, to support this. And then he came back. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to buy the whole lot and give it back to you. And that, and that money apparently came out of the money he had made doing an army painting project for someone. So he, he used his, at at my moment of need, he used his wargaming powers for awesome to help me out. So I want to give a big shout out to, to Alex, uh, who totally did not need to do that and was just like totally awesome in the spur of the moment. And, uh, so, uh, just a huge help. And I hooked him up with a bunch of, uh, preferred enemy swag and stuff from, he wasn't able to make Midwest Conquest this year. So I sent him a bunch of other stuff from Midwest Conquest and things like that as, as thanks. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to how much he, he helped. So I just want to, again, uh, we, we talk about it. We try to wa- walk the, you know, talk the talk and walk the walk. And so, um, any way, anytime someone can use the, what they do as their hobby, what they do for fun and for their spare, in their spare time to help make the world better for people is fantastic. And so, um, I can't 
thank him enough. And I think he's a, it's a fantastic example of what it be, means to be a war gamer and support your community, whether it's one person or uh, a whole organization. And so, uh, yeah, kudos to you, Cordell, kudos to, to Alex, uh, to anybody like, I know, um, they raise money at flying monkey for passage wage, which is a, uh, I believe a, a group that helps veterans. Uh, so, um, yeah, anytime I'll, that's the kind of thing that I, that's one of my favorite things about this community is we are, it is a community that is extremely supportive of each other and of the people around us. And I think not enough people realize that. And I want, I want to bring that to the forefront. So now it's going to be really weird to go into an ad pivot after that. <laughs> well, we've got Patreon supporters. We, we got, can that's also an ad pivot. That. That's still an yeah, ad pivot, but a little, it's a softer ad pivot. <laughs> But trying to save it, man. (laughs) (laughs) But first, before that, if you have a letter you want to have read on the air, uh, we will get back to army lists eventually. Just they take time, and we're trying to keep the episodes at a decent amount of time. Uh, But uh, if you have a letter you want to write to us, whether it's a question, a comment about something we've said on the show, uh, feedback, ideas, if there's somebody who uses their wargaming powers for awesome that you want to thank, um, there's a. Three good ways to get to us. One is our email, and our email addresses are all our first name at preferred enemies. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferred enemies.com. Uh, next is uh, Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, we have a community there. You can like us, follow us. We post what's going on, stuff that's going on with us. Kevin just wished me a happy birthday on there yesterday with uh, because apparently happy birthdays are heresy. Yes. And well, uh, – it was the one Black Templar photo I could find. So, I was like, which yeah, is funny sure. because I don't even play Black yeah. Templars anymore. You played it for a while. <laughs> I did. I did. I'll allow it. Uh, third way is on. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular. Uh, but anyway, you can con- contact us on any or all of those uh, methods, and we take all our letters, collate them together, and we put together a list for the next episode, and we try to get through as many of them as we can within the time allotted. Uh, we will eventually get to everyone in the hopper, at, or at least do our best to. And like I said, list list reviews may take a little bit of a backseat, but we'll try to get back to those uh, when we can. Uh, also, as, as noted earlier, we do have a Patreon. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, that's our online tip jar. It is uh, a way for you to help support the show. If you want to help pay for us to keep our equipment updated, pay for our hosting. I mean, you guys cover our hosting costs. You help us go to various events. Um, you allow us to continue to, Im- to expand and improve the show. And uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd want to just, it's, we don't lock any content behind the paywall. Everybody gets the episodes, but we do try, I am try to make sure that we've got swag and other things. Uh, we've got, I've got an idea next up. I think we're probably going to look at objective markers next for our listeners. So if you would like that, let us know. Uh, but in the meantime, if you just want to give some money a month, uh, even as little as a dollar a month, uh, enough people give a dollar, it all adds up. Uh, and so we have uh, some new patrons to shout out. So Rick Eberts, or Eberts, one of the two, uh, Plain Show, Homestarmy, and Rocco Danella, Uh They are our new patrons. So again, thank you guys. Thank you everyone for your support. Uh, you help continue to make the show possible. Uh, and, uh, so we are going to move on to sponsor, a little bit more sponsor identification. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the big guns of the new apocalypse release. See you in a bit. 
Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding G-board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is our look, our review of uh, Warhammer 40k Apocalypse, the new big boxed version that has come out. This one was, it was interesting to see how they did this, and uh, they made some big promises going in. When they when they kind of announced what their goal for this this edition of Apocalypse was... Their goal was you can finish an Apocalypse game in an afternoon or a day, depending on how big the game is. And that's a bold claim to make, considering how Apocalypse games have gone in the past. I mean, usually a good hour plus of your time for Apocalypse is spent just deploying things. And I mean, when we've played Apocalypse games in the past, we usually get we've like spent what, six, seven hours and maybe gotten through three turns, and that wasn't even a particularly large apocalypse game? Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. And, you know, part of the the thing that would take those older games longer was the fact that you're just playing with the 40k rule set, just doing more of it. You know, everything is just more models, bigger models, more shooting. And if you took that to 8th edition it bogs down really quickly when you start working in stratagems and household traits, you know, like chapter traits, sub-faction traits, all the re-rolls that are possible, things like that. It The game would just not be workable. It just would not function for, uh, for apocalypse-level play. And 
Games Workshop apparently decided that, yes, that is true. Eighth edition rules will not work for this. So we're going to do a new rule set. And so now it's interesting how they've basically set up 40K with three tiers of play, all with somewhat different rules. Because you've got uh, squad-based stuff, like single model, you know, controlling single models uh, for kill team. You've got standard 40K for kind of platoon level play. And then for this big level play, you've got uh, Apocalypse, and it is its own very slim rulebook, actually, by comparison with, like, most gaming rulebooks. At only 120 pages, and a good chunk of that is, you know, missions and kind of talking about the nature of Apocalypse. And here's here's some highlights. Like, the whole last, like, quarter of the book is... Here are particular apocalypse battles and armies and things like that that we, we just wanted to feature so you can get an idea of what an apocalypse force would look like. The actual rules are, let's see, from page 20 through 50. So there's 40 pages of rules, and a lot of that is also like, you know, there's illustrations. There's like a four-page spread of here's what an average turn would play out to be, uh, and then like, several pages on data sheets, a few pages of like three or four pages of different detachment types. So it's not like a really crunchy, deep, complex rule set. And then some of that is even just like, here's an example of how to do a campaign. Here's some examples for doing multiplayer games. But really the core rules of, of this version of Apocalypse are really simplified from standard 8th edition. Uh, Dennis and I got a chance to play this. Uh, if you follow us on Facebook, we posted uh, some photos from that. And a uh, huge shout-out to uh, Peculiar Game and Hobby, who, despite the fact that it was a magic pre-release weekend, uh, were able to, and they had a bolt their monthly Bolt Action event going on at the same time, uh, managed to find enough space for us to have a 6x8 table to play on. So that was that was hugely helpful. So I guess before we get too deep into talking about the rule set, uh, Dennis, what was your take on uh, Apocalypse on this new version? Well, first off, um, I guess surprise. We talked about like the the price point seemed high, but we're like, oh, if you, you've already got the models, you're there. So it's a different game, and that's the best thing I can think say of it because. When you play, you do it by detachments as opposed by units. Your, your individual units do stuff, but you activate by detachments, and that's kind of, I think, helps speed up the game because you don't think per, per unit. You think per detachment because you have to have a 12-inch bubble around your leader, which someone called the synapse tax. But So you, you're really – like Kill Team, We you talk about the three tiers. Kill Team, you focus on the individual person. In 40K, you focus on units. Apocalypse, you're focusing on detachments. That's really what the focus of the game is. And because of that, it moves faster. And also, because you and your opponent have the back-to-back activations, it doesn't feel like, I've done my turn, I can step away, go get a drink, something while my opponent is his. No, you're actively engaged like you are in Kill Team. So I found it to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and that that was uh, a couple of things about that is yeah, just the 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 back to back, you know, I go you go uh alternating activation made a huge difference not not just in the feeling like yeah, you don't never like cuz like in the apocalypse game, it's really easy to tune out while your opponent's side does all the things. 
And this, you know, yeah, you, you are always kind of watching, trying to plan out what's going on. And then it will, you'll try to figure out strategies based on like, okay, so I have to guess like what, if he activates this first, then, then I should activate this. But if he activates this one, then I'll need to activate this. You, you get really, you start thinking really tactically with that. Uh, it definitely changed how some of the things I like I played as the game went on, like in our game, or like the the thing that you thought was like ended up like at first you thought you made a mistake by like pulling your jet bikes no, way I, across. No, I didn't the think d- it was a mistake, but I, I yeah, I activated um, one of my detachments because, or I gave them the ability to run away, and then I realized I also wanted to kill Celestine. But I had to make my choice. Do I fight Celestine first and then let Rob come in and kill this unit, which I already designated to run away? Or do I run away with him first, knowing that then Celestine might fight or run or something? And yeah, I I ended up running away, which was the good choice. Right. But it made me still feel sad that I couldn't do everything. I had to make a decision. Mm Mm-hmm. But that, but that's a that's the a good kind of decision to have yes. to make in a game that that makes yes. for interesting interesting moments. And then, yeah, the thinking in detachments, and this is one of those things. You know, they they advertise, and we're kind of putting the cart before the horse here. We haven't really talked about the rule set yet. <laughs> but uh, as far as like army building, you know, one of the things they've said is, oh yeah, this uses the same kind of detachments that you'd build in 40k. So uh, if you have a 40k army detachment, you have an apocalypse detachment. And that is true, technically. They, like, the only detachment that they don't technically have is the auxiliary detachment. Cause there's no, like, there's an ad hoc detachment, which is like, if you have anything in your army that doesn't fit in one of these, you can just throw it all together in one detachment, but you get no benefits for it at all. Uh, but one thing I, I learned is that while yes, you can like I'm going to throw all my fast attack stuff into a outrider detachment. And I'll throw all my heavies into a spearhead, and I'll throw all my troops into battalion. Because that battalion a has to like those detachments a have to stay stay near their commanders, or else bad things will happen to them. Uh, you have to. They're all going to have to stick together. You have to give the entire detachment a given order. So you have to think in terms of like how how will this detachment work together? What job does this detachment have? Because it's not like a 40K where like, okay, I'm going to take a battalion, but I'm going to send these units over way over here, and I'm going to send these units over here, and I just had to take them all together. But once they're on the table, they just do whatever. No, they stay together in this, and it does change. You have to think of your deta- – you have to kind of build your detachments – as units, I think, and give them, like, this is what this unit does. This is what this detachment is meant to do. And the part that's rough with that is movement. Yes. Because, like, I couldn't, I when I had my jet bike detachment, I kind of wanted to throw in, like, a, a Farsi or something. But no, you, I can't throw anything that can't keep up with the entire rest of the detachment. Yes, because, again, bad things will happen. Um. So it does like even from an army building's uh, structure, uh, it does change how you're going to think about building these detachments. And like I had one detachment which was like three exorcists and uh, a cannonist, and that detachment worked very well because all she they pretty much all just moved together as a group when they moved at all, and she was Box, basically yeah. just there between the three of them to provide her aura of re-rolling ones to hit. Um, she just stood there. Yeah. Whereas, 
like my unit with like I had Celestine and the Gemini and some Seraphim, and then I had a unit of Dominions in an emulator, but it, I, I was doing like Meltagun emulator or Meltagun <laughs> Dominions because that's usually what I take. And unfortunately, the rest of that detachment is an anti-infantry, you know, like they're all like bolt pistols and hand flamers, that kind of thing. They're all made to kill infantry and that Dominion squad wasn't. And in fact, their Meltaguns were terrible for going after infantry. And so if I did it again, I would take flamer, like flamer Dominions with a the emulator flamer on the emulators and then they would all work together but that's like something but you have to think of it as like this all has to work together or it's not going to really work well at all right Um, and that's that's only mostly because the when we get into that i'll just mention here there's strength against personnel and strength against tanks yes and i thought yes and i thought that that's brilliant so so yeah let's just go ahead and kind of kind of talk about how this plays out and uh that just a, a quick overview of the rules because the the core rules are actually pretty simple um you have like for one thing this game uses d12s to provide a higher level of granularity as far as wound rolls save rolls uh you roll initiative with a d12 and that just determines who gets to do particular things first but again it's still alternating back and forth between players so you're never really out of the game. You're always doing something. Uh, so you roll initiative and then you start placing order tokens. They give you a whole bunch of tokens in this box set. And there are basically three different orders you can give a detachment. And every unit in the detachment has to use their this rule or you know, has to use this order, which can be uh, an advance order, which lets you move and then shoot or fight. And each unit inside can decide whether they shoot or fight, but they're all going to move and then they're all going to shoot or fight. Or there's the uh, there's the aim shot order where you don't move, you uh, shoot or fight, but you add one to your hit rolls if you're shooting and you subtract one if you're fighting. And then finally, there's the assault order, which is you double your move. There's no random charge rolls or anything. You just double your move and... Uh, you can, after you move, then each unit can make a fight action. And, and correction, like, each unit in a detachment, like, if you do a, uh, an advance or an assault, they can move. They don't have to move. But they're all going to, they all have the opportunity to move, and then they all have the opportunity, like, in advance to shoot or fight. If they are a super heavy, they can shoot and fight if they advance. And super heavies get a few of their own special rules, but, uh, and then... Uh, the other thing you do is this game has completely removed like traditional stratagems. Uh, they don't have, there's no pool of command points. There's uh, no like stratagems or anything of different costs. There's also no chapter traits. Like your factions have an ability built in, but like there's no, like you don't get a special ability for having Blood Angels or uh, Cabal of the Black Heart or things like that. There's no, like, constantly uh, present ability for having a partic- uh, particular sub-faction. However, what you do have is command assets, which are basically cards. You will build a deck of 30 cards, uh, 
And for every, you draw one, you always draw one. And then for every warlord, which every, which is a, every character that's in charge of a detachment, uh, you draw one additional one. If you ever have more than 10, you discard down. And then you can play those during the game. And those basically serve as stratagems. And when I first looked at them, they give you like 300 in the box, which uh, is really good. And every faction gets some. Some definitely get more than others. Uh, custodes get it really hard. They only have three in there. So if you're playing a full Custodes uh, Apocalypse Army, building a deck is going to be hard. But uh, what they've done is instead of having your chapter tactics or your sept traits or your legion tactics, traits or whatever as abilities on your units they are cards in the deck and when i first looked through the cards like i noticed like oh yeah here's like i'm gonna let's say i want to build a, a deck for the for my tower army uh well this one triggers off of viola sept this one triggers off of borkan this one triggers off of sasea oh well great that doesn't do me any good i'm playing tau sept however each one of those cards also has an ability that says Alternatively, you can basically play this card to re-roll a hit or re-roll a wound or re-roll a save. So even the cards that you can't use technically, you can still use as re-rolls. So you still have like that same kind of like command re-roll ability that you have in 40k. It's just going to use up one of your command assets, but it's a command asset that you're not going to get a lot of use out of anyway. I was also a bit concerned that Okay, Apocalypse, this is great for one player, but is there enough for two players to play out of the box? And uh, we did. Kind of, yeah. Kind of, yeah. We, uh, when we took our, we basically took all our faction, because you were playing Eldar, I was playing Sisters and Knights, so you took all the Asriani ones, I took all the Knights and Sisters ones, and then we, that put us at about, what, like 22, 23 cards? Something like that. Something like that. I think I was a little less. Yeah, and then there's a stack of generic cards that any army could use. And we kind of looked through those, figured out which ones would definitely fit one army more than the other. Like, you took the psychic powers because I didn't have any psychers. I took the anti-psychic powers (laughs) because that kind of fit my army anyway. And then, but that still left us with a bunch. And we basically, and the book even says, if you both are building off of the same set... Uh, just randomly div- like divvy them out, shuffle like deal them out between the two players, and that's what they get. So you can play two player out of one apocalypse box, and we did, and it worked. It it seemed to work fine. Some like I said, some factions are going to have more trouble than others. If you're playing a multi faction army, that does mean you are going to draw stratagems that will only help particular. You know, you're going to draw command assets that will only help particular units in your army or particular attachments i I will toss out this because especially for doing the eldar one in the eldar um, command deck there were specific ones for like sam hain for beltan um eandin but and so i mean technically they they encourage you to have all of those kind of represented but at the same time they if you didn't have a unit that said that they had a different effect for just affecting any eldari so I like that you could still make it um, like distinct, or you could just have it generic for just anybody can use it. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, so those cards are still there and, um, there's not a lot of advantage unless you are saving a one or two like clutch cards for like a situation gets really bad. Like there's a couple of cards in here that will allow you to make save, like always make saves on the D12. Those you may want to hold on to for like, you know, this unit's about to take a beating. So I'm going to go ahead and hold on to that. But otherwise I don't think there's much benefit in not spending your cards as you get them. I, I, I think, you know, cause getting, especially because the number of attacks you're rolling are scaled down a lot. Um, a so rerolls are big. Yeah, a, a single reroll could make a bit could could make or break a particular turn. And then once you have, but like once you've you've signed your orders, you've drawn your command assets, then you get into the action phase, and then it's basically just you alternate uh, picking a detachment. Uh, you you place your orders secretly, and then everybody reveals them at the same time. Uh, you actually had an ability on your uh, autark that made him very useful. <laughs> yeah, I like that they made the Autark and the Fireseers really useful in this. Um, if they are the um, Warlord of the Detachment, so that means if I had a, both a Fireseer and an Autark, so I had to pick one, so I only got to use one of their abilities, the Autark let me pick two orders for my um, u- or my detachment, and then after I see all the things, uh, we reveal all of what we're doing, I discard one of those actions. So it give, gave me a lot of flexibility. Yeah, and, and it you used that made very the Autark well. feel like a strategist. Yes, and it, you used it very well with your jet bikes because he was he was on a Skyrunner hanging with them. And yeah, like the turn that you mentioned, like running away, you gave them, what, the advance and the assault order? Yeah. And then used the assault to just whip all the way across the table. Oh, yeah, because they had, like, 17 movement or something like that. So it's 34 inches. I'm just getting away from you, and yeah. you weren't going to catch me. <laughs> yeah. Which, unfortunately, that's one thing about Apocalypse, and I don't think there's any getting around this. The tables are big. I mean, the smallest table they recommend is a 6x6. Six six. Arms only stretch so far. So yeah. the it middle of the table... Be, though. Yeah, the middle of the table is very hard to reach. And yeah. we said we weren't going to use it, and you ran your knights right up there. I'm like, Rob... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I didn't mean it. It just worked out that way. I did. I, I put the mm-hmm. we put the fortress of redemption in the middle. Like here, this big thing will fill up the middle of the table, and we won't have to deal with anything directly in the middle. And just like, but next to the middle is completely fine. Okay, so yeah, sorry about that. I mean, I didn't do help it much by sending my knights to go fight your knights. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, the, like. But as far as, yeah, activate, you activate a detachment, you, you follow its order, and you, you do all your, like, let's say you, you pick an advance action. You move everybody you want to move, and then you shoot, or you do your shooting, or you do your fighting. And shooting and fighting, it's, it works basically the way it does in 40k. And one of the things I really love about this is that rather than releasing a whole bunch of codexes separately... Every data sheet, including all the Forge World units, is online as a free download. And it's broken out by faction. So you if you are only interested in like like I only play Taos, just download the, the Tau and the Tau Forge World files. And that is that and the Apocalypse box are all you need to play besides having a, a an appropriately sized army. Which if you're playing Apocalypse, you should already have an army that big. Don't get into this unless you have that. There's no point. But 
But the fact that those are free and that also means that if there's any errata, they can theoretically just upload the update those on the fly. Uh, that's fantastic. They they could have gone the money grab option and thrown them all in a book, even if it was just one extra book you had to buy or one from GW and one from Forge World. But they didn't do that. They they put everything up. I mean, and it's everything except the eight. The eight are not in there, but everything else is in there. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, Bone Singers, which were a um, like a a Games Workshop made to order exclusive, like a few months, not a few months, maybe a year or two ago, that was in there too. And it was like it's never been in a codex; it's only been printed that one time, and it was in the APOC sheets. Yep. All the new units that have, like, the new Space Marine units that are only in um, the Shadow Spear box, as of right now, have data sheets in there. And, in fact, refer to a couple of weapons that haven't been released yet. So, uh, that is coming uh, as well. It's like, it, it was a kind of a sneak preview. Chaos Knights were in there, and we hadn't seen Chaos, before the Chaos Knight Codex came out. So... That is also a thing, you know, so it's like they, they put everything out there. And it's it's interesting to see because you don't, again, you don't treat these as individual models. You're taking them as units. And so it can be a bit off-putting at first when you're like, oh, yeah, this is like my five-person sisters, like Battle Sister Squad. It has one wound, and it does one attack. Not one per model, one attack. And it doesn't have one wound per model. It has one wound. Because everything is being scaled down, it's a little bit more abstract. But that also, the side effect of that is knights, like all of my Imperial Knights had six wounds each. Makes some things, some things scale better than others. Like a lot of the units are like, okay, so at five unit, at five models, this unit has one wound and does one attack. At ten models, this unit has two wounds and two attacks. I thought some of the model, like especially some of the individual characters didn't scale down well, which seems odd for a single model. But you and I both had issues with like Celestine and Jane Czar. Yeah. Uh, my issue with Jane Czar is if you looked at a squad of Banshees, a squad of five. So this is five Banshees. They normally have one attack. Their weapons gave them times two attacks. So they got two attacks. Well, Jane Czar has one attack and her weapons should be on par with the Banshee weapon. Cause she's the Phoenix Lord of the Banshees. Uh, so that just, it didn't feel right. And she also had a higher, um, a harder time to kill troops cause her strength against personnel was six up while the, the Banshees were five up. So I'm like, she doesn't kill people better and she has fewer attacks with a better weapon and, it did not make sense to me, especially when I could compare Karandas, the Striking Scorpion's Phoenix Lord, who he has actually better weapon and better at things than the Striking Scorpions did. So he felt like a Phoenix Lord. Jane Zara felt like a commander, maybe, because she, she was more one who wanted to sit in the back because she didn't have as good of stuff, but... She should not be one sitting in the back because the Banshees are supposed to be up front. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, and Celestine, like I'm used to charging Celestine forward and used to her just shredding things. She has one attack. Yeah. And that would that. And now she was a good bubble like buff character. And I think 
named characters in many cases are going to be you're going to bring them more for as slightly hardier commanders or you're going to bring them for the the bubbles of uh, buffs that or debuffs that they bring. Pro- yeah, definitely the bubbles of buffs or debuffs because most of them are only going to have one wound and you can target them right away. I mean, there's a minus one to hit if it's a character and there's something intervening, but a minus one to hit isn't huge. So characters can die and it, it, your opponent should be pick, trying to pick them off. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there are units that can also get around that penalty, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it there's like some characters, yeah, when you scale it down this way, feel a little less like I would play them like I would still probably bring Celestine, but I would definitely not rush her up. I would keep her back like on the yeah. back line of assault. Whereas in standard 40K, if I put, you know, like I'm going to rush her up because she's going to murder things. And technically, if you think about it, everything being scaled down by a factor of about five or six, Celestine would have one attack at that sca- scale because she's going to kill like a five person unit. Yeah. <laughs> But it still it feels weird. It, it's it so it is going to change the way you look at particular characters. This is going to be more game about units within detachments rather than individual characters. But the characters are still there, and they're, they're they can still be effective, just not necessarily as combat monsters the way they would in standard 40k. Right, and I, I'm fine with them <laughs> scaling them down. I think I said my only issue was. Her stats were worse than the banshees that she's supposed yeah, to command. Yeah, yeah, she should have she should have doubled attacks. Absolutely. But then the other th- thing of this is this game really encourages you to put as many models in a squad as you can. Yes. Because that'll normally double the wounds, or if you can like triple the size. Like my jet bike squads had three wounds each because I had nine jet bikes, and like a squad of three was one, and then six would be two, nine was three. So. That made them a lot more survivable because there were so many of them. Yes, and uh, that's one where also the scaling was a bit weird because of how their weapons worked. Where yeah. because most units like you okay, so again, I'm I've got the sisters data sheet up. Like if I look at Battle Sisters squad, a Battle Sisters squad of like let's say ten models has two attacks, and if you look at and they are equipped with bolt guns. They don't count the number of bolt guns. They just are equipped with bolt guns. And bolt guns have a number of attacks based on the user, whatever the user's attack is. Now, they have rapid fire, so that helps a bit because uh, it you know doubles their number of attacks and half range, just like normal uh, rapid fire. Uh, but, yeah, so they would get two attacks at 24 inches, four attacks at 12 inches. And then if they have a heavy bolter in the squad – they get one a shot. They get one attack with the heavy bolter, not one attack with like multiple shots. Just they get one attack. The jet bikes could each take what like a shuriken catapult or twin shuriken yeah. catapult or shuriken cannon or scatter laser. Yes, and then suddenly that was like nine scatter laser shots or nine twin link shuriken catapult shots, and that was a bit weird. No, well, to be fair, those were also like fifteen point or points a squad, which is a lot in this game. Yes. Yeah. Cause you build everything at power level and that's, there's not the fidgety like war gear options here. Um, like the battle sister squads, I can put flamers in there, but other than the heavy versions, they don't do anything. 
Uh, you can put whatever war gear you want on your like on your commander. Like I can give a yeah. cannonist uh, an inferno pistol and a power sword or whatever. They just have master crafted weapons. Yep, or That's the Autark, whatever you put on an Autark. He was used to be so customizable. Now it's Autark weapons. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, it, and you can't even put a gun on his jet bike. No, that made me sad. So, so again, yeah, things get kind. You know, it gets simplified, it gets streamlined, but it also again helps keep the scale. And it also, you know, you're cutting way down on the number of attacks you're rolling, which does help keep things moving at a good pace. Um, weapon skill, ballistic skill work exactly the same way they do now. Wounding is completely different because you don't wound compared to toughness. As Dennis said earlier, you, your weapons have a strength against infantry or strength against personnel and a strength against tanks. And which one you roll is like, is the unit light? And every unit has either the light or heavy or super heavy keywords. Uh, is it light? Use, uh, strength against personnel. Is it heavy or super heavy? Use strength against tanks. And that will actually make quite a difference. Um, so, for example, I'm looking at uh, a look at bolt guns. Uh, the bolt gun is strength seven up versus personnel, strength nine up versus tanks. A multi melta, on the other hand, strength or er, its strength against personnel is ten up, but four up against tanks. Now, what that number is is what you roll on a d12 to wound. So a multi-melta is absolutely crap against a unit of of infantry, which makes sense. You're only likely to kill one guy with a multi-melta in standard 40k because you're going to get like one shot, maybe two. So it's not going to be that effective against a squad of troops, but against a tank, that thing will burn through its armor. And having the, having that based on a D12 roll gives you a lot more range on, and you can really see like which weapons are going to be effective in which situation. Like you unloading the twin link shuriken catapults at my night. <laughs> Cause they, what, what against yeah. personnel, they were like what, six or seven. I think they're seven or eight. They're, they're okay. And then against the heavy tanks, they're, they're an 11 up. Yeah. So you were lucky if you got a wound in. Hey, that's why I had doom and fortune on you. Yes, yes, it did it, it, it help. <laughs> oh, um, it helped a lot. And uh, now here's the other big difference uh, with 40k. You don't like you rolled a wound. You don't save right away. You just accumulate blast markers. Uh, if you have no damage on you and you take a wound, you take a small blast marker. If you take a, a wound and you have, or if you take damage and you have a small blast marker it becomes a large blast marker and then you never will have you will never have more than one small blast marker on you because they'll all get upgraded to you know so you'll go like small large one small one large two large one small two large three large and so on and where that gets important is then you get once everybody's moot done all their detachments they've done all their moving and shooting and everything then you get to the damage phase which also has morale rolled into it and the damage phase has like three por- portions to it. And the first one is very important. And that's one of the things where you want to make sure you stay within that 12 inch bubble around your detachment's commander. Because if you don't, that unit is treated as out of command. So with the damage phase, you look at all the units that have blast markers on it and you alternate back and forth between players 
pro- basically running through the damage phase for each unit. You have to do super heavies first because big things get dealt with first because they can blow up and cascade into smaller things. Uh, but then at, when you pick a unit, if it has any blast markers in it, this is where staying within that 12-inch commander ba- band, that 12-inch bubble is very important because if when you pick a unit, if it has any blast markers next to it and it is out of command range you actually mark it with an out of command token if it moves too far away it runs away it's just routed and it's disappeared so if you if a unit gets too far from its commander and it takes a single wounding hit it's gone so you it it encourages you to stay close also that's one of the reasons why the movement trays besides speeding up movement the new movement trays they've done with uh, for Apocalypse, which are actually a really good buy considering how many you get in the box. Because, like, the 25 mils, you get 18 trays, which will move 90 models uh, in the box. The coherency on individual units is one half inch between models. And if the unit has more than, I think, three models, they have to, each model has to be within a half inch of two models in the unit, which means you cannot have a long line stretched out. They have to clump up and cluster together, which keeps them moving quickly. It keeps them together, keeps it all very coherent. And I will say the Games Workshop movement trays are set up perfectly for this. For the most part, they're, yeah, for the yeah. for the half inch bubble, yeah, they're for the half inch coherency, yeah, they are set up perfectly. There are a few models units that do not work in their movement trays, mostly because of how they're modeled. Uh, gene stealers come to mind, like pure strain gene stealers. Their arms are all stretched out so far <laughs> that they they it's like monkeys in a barrel trying to to put them on the movement trays. I I wonder if that would be helped by because I know gene stealer cults. They're on 32s mm-hmm. as opposed to 25s. Oh, that makes a difference, yeah. But still, if their arms extend past that, they could like still clip each other. Yeah. I mean, and because the Banshees, I had to like put them on the 25 one so that their swords pointed out. Because if the swords went inside, well, then they could hit each other with it. So, I mean, it, it, it probably can work. You just have to finagle with it. But I know I would look at those movement trays to start with, and I'm like, "Who? Would, why would you need these?" But then after seeing Rob get it, I picked up some to put use on the Wraith Guard, and it made it so much easier to move them and make sure that they were in coherency. Because you, know, oh yeah, here's these five, here's these five, and it just it made yeah. things a lot smoother and nicer. Yeah, there there's 18 of the little trays in 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 per box for the 25 millimeter ones, and uh, yeah, I have three horde armies so i've bought <laughs> a box for each one and you'll you will use it and it's but no it really does help like and i th- like the 25 mil ones i was even able to like uh you know they, there's whole a whole set of rules for like garrisoning terrain like i really like the terrain rules they have in this where basically it's almost like being inside a vehicle but i was like putting a block of five sisters on a on a, like a, a walkway in a building and it fit just fine. And yeah, I just made it really easy to set them up and move them. But yeah, so now you, so you've decided like, okay, so you've checked to see, did this, did this unit get out of command and got, got wounded at all? Okay. Did it run away? Okay. So good. No, that's, that's taken care of. Then you move to actually making saving throws. And that's where the large versus small blast marker matters. 
if you only have a small, for every small blast marker on you, you make a save with a D12 against your armor save. Now, for example, Battle Sisters have an have a save of six. And also, there's no armor save or invulnerable. There's no multiple types of save. Like, if a unit has an invulnerable save, it's been worked into the unit itself. But like, Battle Sisters have a save of six up. If they take one small blast marker, they are saving slightly better than half the time. They're saving on a six or better on a D12. However, if they take a large blast, which means they've taken... They, they took two two wounding shots, or maybe a wounding shot with a destroyer weapon. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now they only make their saves. They make the saves against large blast markers on a D6. And suddenly that's a much harder save to make. Some units have saves that are above six, which means they won't be saving on a D6. And in fact, the rules say sometimes it may be impossible to roll high enough to make a save, in which case... Uh, you just fail the save automatically. Like your jet bike said, what, a eight up save? Yep. And the Banshees yeah. have an eight up save too. Yeah. So if they take two hits, they just take a wound. Yeah. Which I like that for multiple reasons. But one of the things I like is it gives the feel back the older versions of 40K where if you just get hit by either so much damage or just a big shot, you, you, you got through your armor. No save. Yep. Depending on, like, how big a threat you are, you can accumulate hits pretty fast. <laughs> like, first round, I had a knight take, what, like, seven large bla- large and one small? Yeah, I, I wanted to overkill on it. Because that's the other thing, because you don't roll to see if um, the damage happens until the end of the fa- round. I didn't know if he was going to make saves or not, so I just kept on putting more and more damage into it, just so I could feel confident that, yes... It has enough things it won't save at all. Yes. And uh, yeah, with the damage being at the end, it does encourage you to overkill. But the flip side of that is the unit is going to act at full capacity for at least a turn. So unlike the New Year's game we had where Kevin had the uh, Throne of Skulls (laughs) for you to use and it went away for like top of one. That won't happen in Apocalypse. I wanted to make sure you got the full experience of using it because that's nine times out of ten. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah, but that is also another thing is, as Rob said, everything at least gets a turn to shoot and do everything it can. So you don't yeah. have to worry about getting shot off the table on top of one because one, um, you alternate your activations and two, you don't pull off models until the end of one. That is nice. Yeah. And also, like, let's say Dennis goes first and he like I've given my knight like an advance order and he goes but he goes first and his knight detachment his wraith knights target my knight and just like you again like like he said just overkill it like it's gonna have like eight damage on like eight large blast markers on it I'm only saving those on like a five up on d6s I'm only got six wounds I'm most likely dead when I use that, I know how much damage I'm like, you know, how much damage has been assigned to me. I can go ahead and just try to use that thing as a su- like on a suicide attack because <laughs> I, b- because I know it's not going to survive, but at least I yeah. can like go down swinging, which I, I really do like that. Uh, but then anyway, you make your saves and then for each save, it doesn't matter whether it was a small or a large, you take one wound. If you ever take as many wounds as the unit has, it goes away. Um, you know, it's, it's destroyed. You don't ever pull individual models off. You don't 
like, oh, this unit of like 30 boys. Okay, so I took like four wounds. I haven't looked up how many. Uh, I imagine 30 boys probably have like th- boys. A unit of 30 boys has six wounds. Oh, man. That's just a lot to deal with. Yes, and, and they have like they have four attacks, and if they have shootas, they have sixteen attacks because it it's times four. If they have choppas, they have twelve attacks because it triples it. So I mean, a, a big mob of boys is going to do a lot of swings, but they have six wounds. If they take two or three wounds, you don't pull off like fifteen models. You just leave the whole squad there. You just put wound markers next to it. If it ever gets below half remaining, then it becomes critically damaged, and it ha- and you have the number of attacks it has. Hmm. So this and is you- why I said it, it. It's good to build as big of squads as you can because they don't really deteriorate until close to the end. Yep. And then once once the squad, in this case, like the unit of boys, takes six damage, then it then you just pull the whole unit. So that that's another thing. Like you're not. Having to figure out, like, okay, oh, so how many attacks do I have left? How many are rolling? Also, the fact that you're rolling at most 16 dice for boys as opposed to, like, 80 or 90. Hundreds. Hundreds yeah. <laughs> uh, you can see how this speeds the game up significantly. But, uh, yeah, so uh, then – but you don't pull the blast markers yet either. Like, you've you've rolled to see how many wounds you take, but you don't, but you don't get rid of the blast markers until – it's time to uh, then you do morale last for the unit, and again you're doing this you're doing this on a unit by unit basis. Uh, morale is you roll a d6, you add the number of blast markers, large or small, that the unit had on it. If that you if that is over your leadership, then you take one more damage. Not one damage for each one for however many over your leadership is. You just take one more damage to represent people running away, which. I think at least once in our game actually killed a unit. I think it killed your um, pennant engines, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I think I think I lost. Yeah, I think I lost my final pennant engine to because I had a unit of three and I lost like I lost one. The last one to uh, like I had one wound remaining and or the unit had one wound remaining and then uh, yeah I failed a morale check because I because you shot the hell out of them because they needed to go away. They were scary. They are scary. They they are still scary at this scale of game. I mean, and on my side, it was the Wraith Guard that I had to do the morale tests on because they just had so many wounds, and you just kept on putting so many shots in them. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept healing them. Yes, because <laughs> they decided to give you rules for a Bone Singer. I know, it's great. And anyway, that right there, that's that's the whole flow of a turn of Apocalypse. Games are... are the are have a hard limit of five turns in most in all the missions we've seen because you're moving at a detachment level uh we finished a two a 250 point per side in which or 250 power level which worked out to be uh, you had like 4400 points 4400 like points yeah and i had like just under 4100 if we did it standard like eighth edition points we finished that in a now we only went four turns because by the end of turn four, it was a foregone conclusion that Dennis was winning. But uh, we finished that in what about three and a half hours? Three and a half hours. Yeah, it they they made a bold promise and they managed to deliver, and I was really impressed. It was and, fun. Yeah, 
Go the ahead. biggest thing was like it, it, everything, like you said, being at the detachment, it sped it up. Movement felt faster. The back and forth, there wasn't really wasted time of what happened last turn. Let me get back into it because you're engaged the entire time mm-hmm. and rolling fewer dice and having fewer like, okay, I made my invulnerable save. Let me go to my feel no pain save. Let me. And you know, not taking off individual models, they did so many things to help speed up and then consolidate the time frame that you can play a game in. Mm-hmm. Now, this scale would not like if you thought, okay, well, that means I can play like a forty k, like a standard forty k game in like an hour. No, this is not going to scale well. That you will lose a lot by scaling, trying to scale it, as, trying to play this like a standard forty k si- size army. It wouldn't be very fun. But at th- for this scale, it works fantastically. And then other things they've done to streamline things is there is a page of common abilities. Because when they first started releasing information on like the various factions in Apocalypse, they would talk about like, oh yeah, this uh, this has the destroyer rule, or this has the uh, ignore damage rule. Uh, this has the you know this is rapid fire. This has stealth. Well, they. Defined all those on one page of this book. Was it one or two? Is it's it one? one. It wow. is one page. Everything from anti-air to witch fire. And so, for example, there's Deep Strike. Deep Strike works pretty much the same way it works in 40K. You come in anywhere more than nine inches away from any enemy units. And no more than half the total normal number of armies units in your army can be set up in Deep Strike Reserve. So just like standard match play 40K. But it's a st- it like they can just give a unit the deep strike rule, kind of like they used to. <laughs> and there's no reason why they couldn't. There is absolutely no reason why 40k couldn't bring that improvement in. Destroyer, which is a very important one. Uh, if a wound roll for an attack made with this weapon is successful, place two blast markers next to the target unit instead of one, which means it's all you're always placing large tokens. If there are a few weapons in the game that have apocalyptic destroyer, they place two large blast markers every time. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Inferno means attacks made with this weapon automatically hit. Every flamer weapon has Inferno. Every weapon that can uh, attack or that can fire without needing line of sight has Barrage. Every weapon that can uh, tar- that's made to target characters has Sniper in this version because y- you... You can shoot at a character. You just take a minus one if they're not the closest. Sniper weapons add two to their hit rolls against characters. So it makes up for the difference plus one. Stealth, you subtract one to hit rolls uh, for, or from hit rolls that target this unit with range attacks. Again, a whole bunch of just standardized rules. Supersonic is a standardized rule. Uh, terror troops. Subtract one from the leadership characteristic of units while they're within six inches of any enemy units with this ability, which means that you're very likely, especially if you can put a few wounds, a couple of blast markers on something, to do at least one free wound on them if you can uh, get somebody that affects their leadership. And I think that didn't make a difference on your – the Banshees had that, and they used that against your Yeah, my Or Yeah, no, you're right, against the, uh, against the Immolator. Yeah, because it doesn't care whether it's infantry or not. It's just like it's leadership. The, the crew decides to bug out and run away. But there is no reason why you couldn't have, even in the standard battle primer pamphlet they have, have one page of common abilities. Just just one. And then 
redo some of the 40k data sheets to just have standardized because as we talked about in the rules question on the first part of the episode you have rules that are sound similar but are worded very differently having something that was that would be more standardized especially in all the things like the all the rules that are like deep strike that all work the same way all the you know it's like save yourself some time and just put one page of common of common universal rules in that's all I don't ask for much. But no, uh, this... I'm very, very pleased with this apocalypse. I mean, this this is an apocalypse because it's so sped up, because it's so streamlined. You could play this... You can play this version of apocalypse casually. As long as you... Yeah, the, the, the most difficult... Space. space. Yeah, space and terrain is the would be the most difficult spot. Although they do call that out in the book saying that you can use floor space. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you if you've got enough space on the floor, like floor hammer is a a fine ancient tradition, and there's no reason why it can't can't continue. But as long as you've got the space to play, and they even tell you like, oh, you're playing this much combined power level, you should have a space table space roughly this big, and expect the game to take this many hours. But when I say like you could play it casually, apocalypse has traditionally been one of these things like we're going to run an apocalypse event, we're going to ask people to prep ahead of time we're going to set aside a day or maybe two days weekend. to do this event yeah we're going to do this over a weekend we're going to have we're going to go to the store early in the morning we're going to get all the table or late or late the night before get all the table space and terrain set up we're going to get there early in the morning because we know we're going to get through maybe two turns day one maybe three if we're lucky mm-hmm. and then as things start dying turns four and five will be like we'll do turns one through three Saturday, maybe, and then we'll do four through five, maybe three through five on day on Sunday. This you could say, hey, you want to go up to the store and, and you know, like we'll see if they got enough table space, and if so, you want to play an apocalypse game, and you could do that in an afternoon and, and have a reasonable scale of game and have and have like big stuff on the table, lots of stuff moving around, have fun with it, and that's an ideal goal as far as I'm concerned, as far as making, making, having big armies and big collections and, and the people who have like Titans and lots of knights and things like giving them a chance to actually use their stuff in a way that isn't going to eat all the time. I think they've, I think they pulled it off. And honestly, the price point for entry at a hundred bucks, it seems steep, but considering they give you literally everything you need to play it, well, it, it seems bucks. it seems steep, but at the same time, if you've spent enough money in Warhammer 40k that you have enough to field an apocalypse army, you can probably spend the hundred bucks on this one. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. And again, we were able to make playing out of one box work. So if you wanted to, you could split a box with somebody and just like have it be a shared box and like just build decks out of that. It's better if you have the full selection of cards and they have released a command assets deck, but it's like a hundred additional cards. There are no reprints from what's in the base set. So you still need to buy the base set to play. That's also where the rules are and all the tokens you're going to need. And you will want want the tokens. You want the tokens. This is a game where, uh, you know, the tokens are not optional, but you know, besides the keeping track of what orders each attachment has, and what, how many blast markers they've taken. Just having like 
things to mark. Like this is the like there are commander markers. It's like you can just point at this is the commander of this detachment. So you always know who they are. You don't have so it allows you like at a glance to look across the battlefield and really be able to quickly tell what what the setup is and and how everything needs to be you know like what's going on. Um, they give you twelve d twelves in the box, which. We made work for two people, but it's one person – like 12 is enough for one person most likely. Um, they do sell a Apocalypse dice set that has like 25 D6s and 25 D12s, which are that, fancier than the ones that are in this box. They look really nice, but if it was down to like maybe 12 or 15, not 25 – because, yeah, you're. I think 12 is a good number that I would use, but 25 just seems like a lot unless you're splitting it with somebody. Yeah, but yeah, I, I well, it's like the brick of the apocalypse brick of dice they did, like in sixth or seventh edition apocalypse, sixth edition apocalypse, where it was like a brick of 125 dice. Now in that version, you could actually because you're running standard rules, 125 dice is like one orc attack. But um, <laughs> I, I'm changed my mind, uh, but. Uh, but yeah, in this, because of how everything's been scaled down, yeah, that's that's like you splitting a, a box of dice with somebody, which, hey, it defrays the costs of getting into Apocalypse and having enough D12s, because you will need the D12s. They're, they're absolutely Dude. vital to the game. But I also really have to say, I appreciate, you know, uh, GW added, use, you know, they're using some D10s, m- mostly for... Not not so much for things that happen in game, but for things that happen between games and kill team. But I really appreciate them kind of branching out and saying, like, not everything needs to be D6s and maybe having some additional dice types, even just one additional dice type helps give us a wider range of what we can do. Apocalypse would not work. I honestly believe it would not work well without the the D12s. The the way they've built the rule set, I don't think you could Making it two d six based because of like the whole bell curve of probability wouldn't be a good replacement for it. I think this, w- but this works really well. Yeah, I, I picked up a, a set of the dice, uh, and looking at them, it's interesting because the d sixes are much more like those like little Chessex dice. Uh huh. They're 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 not their typical like big huge honking d6s that they sell in sets for like the other factions and such so these actually feel pretty good yeah and, and they, they all they all have a nice little they're they're very themed because they have all have the little like kind of apocalypse blast marker thing around the numbers yeah they look like they're actually decently easy to read also kudos to them for only putting skull icons on the ones <laughs> yes. Yes. There's oh, thank sixes God. <laughs> and skull markers and twelves and skull markers. And yeah, so and there's I mean, there's a lot of accessories you can buy for this. Um the ones that I would say are ab like getting dice, like you can get dice anywhere. That's not a big deal. But the things that are absolute must haves, I would say movement trays are right up there. Unless you're playing an army that is like knights or something where you're just moving single big things around or, you know, there are some lots of tanks or, you know. Yeah. If you're only moving things that like are single model units, 
or even like squadrons of two or three, you probably don't need the movement trays. And some units like crisis suits are on 50 mil. Anything that's like on a 50 mil up, they don't make movement trays for those. I'm sure you can find them 3D printed somewhere. But like if you're using anything that's like on anything from a 25 mil through a 40 mil base, I would almost say they are must-haves. Just because, you know, whether it's the GW ones or you get some somebody prints some out or you get wood, you know, laser cut wood or whatever, however you movement tray your, you know, whatever, however you do your movement trays, those are just, I would almost say absolutely required for this just to keep the speed up. I know some people are even moving to using movement trays in standard 40K, especially competitive, just because it cuts down on the amount of time you're using moving individual things. So why not? Uh, they have data sheet cards for a number of the factions, not everything, but the major ones. However, they do not include the Forge World cards, from what I understand. It is just the standard GW Prime cards. So if you don't have any Forge World models, great, that's fantastic. You'll have everything you need. It costs 25 bucks, or you can download these and print them out for free, which is what I did. I went ahead and picked up the the orc set and the Tyranid set. Um, just opening up the the the, the orc set, um, they are they're very much like the the war scrolls that you can buy for um, for Age of Sigmar. Yeah, they're that slight it, like it, that it, kind of half size form factor. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're they're pretty nice. They're exactly what you would expect for old data sheets yep and and you can and like i said they're formatted like this isn't a case where like it's formatted one way on the website and format another way on these sheets it looks like the ones you the pdfs you get are like almost their print proofs for these yeah. cards they come in a little slip case mm-hmm. no they, they they look nice and if you don't have if you don't want to print them if you want to have a nice set and especially if you only play like one maybe two factions I'd, I'd say they're probably worth picking up just to have. But, yeah, they're, they, I wouldn't say they're required. You, if you, have, you, if you, don't, have a t- you definitely don't need them. Yeah, if you have a you – know, you, if most people have smartphones, you can have your data sheets available. Although having them printed out on separate pages or on the cards makes it a bit easier to flip through them. Because when I say our game took three and a half hours, that's with referring back to the rule book and looking at things up on our data sheets because we had to learn brand new data sheets. So having the cards there, having them laid out for just the units you're using would would be handy. Although depending on how many units you're using, you might have most of the deck spread out in front of you. But no, I, I think I really like I like this approach to Apocalypse and the way they've done it. Unlike Kill Team, I don't see any need for like future expansions that wouldn't just be like I mean if they wanted to release more missions. But that's something they can do missions in White Dwarf and Chapter Approved. Not that they do anything for outside of Standard 40K and Chapter Approved. But, like, you know, like, whereas Kill Team has the Elites expansion and the Arena expansion and the Commanders expansion, I don't think Apocalypse will need this. I think it's kind of a one-and-done purchase deal. Yeah, which thinking about it, the only things I could think of would be maybe Terrain or maybe more Command cards. Well, yeah, and those are those are things that yeah, more command cards are not bad. Having a, eventually releasing the apocalypse book and the apocalypse command, like the base command card set, card sets separately, 
might not be the worst thing in the world. But as of right now, yeah, it's like besides just kind of expanding a little bit. But I don't see any like fundamental changes like how Commander's like, oh, now you can play kill teams up to 200 points and they – Commanders work differently than everyone else and use different specializations and things. I don't I don't think you'd need that for uh, Apocalypse. Uh, I could see maybe if you're on that a, ca- a campaign book, an Apocalypse campaign book where they put in like you know, but that would be new missions, new command cards. And that would yeah. be or if, you know, like the next time they do like their Vigilus, Vigilus Defiant, Vigilus Ablaze style campaign books, throwing some Apocalypse missions in there that are themed to that campaign alongside like the standard 40k stuff would be great and it would just it would be like you know maybe a one to two page spread per mission they'll throw like three three four missions in there and i mean it's a small amount of page give up to to further support one of your product lines no i i like it if you have big 40k armies i would recommend apocalypse i think it i you know don't be put off really by the hundred dollar perch i mean if you don't have a hundred dollars don't do it, but I wouldn't be put <laughs> off by the price. I think it's a, a like Dennis said, you know, like you said, Dennis, it, if you've already got an army that's big enough to play Apocalypse, $100 is not a big outlay. And it's also cheaper than buying a knight. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It's, it definitely, it's better. But yeah, it, and I think you can, I, I think they've built a mass battle rule set at this scale that is fast and fun to play. And I would, I would gladly play Apocalypse. In fact, we are probably going to be playing a big apocalypse game for our 200th episode because it sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have not gotten a chance to play yet. I am looking forward to it cuz it sounds pretty cool. It is I I think you will enjoy it. I think you'll have a lot of fun with it, especially getting to bring like like if you bring your orcs, like getting actually bring like all your orcs plus your stompa plus stuff like that and get to use them all and have fun with it. I think you'll have a blast. And Kevin yeah, is a town I, I stomp. I haven't used that in forever. Since the last, <laughs> last apocalypse game. Probably the last apocalypse game we did. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, and heck, at 200 points, let's see. All right, 200 PL, because we're, we're thinking, of, you know, for 200th episode, 200 PL per person. Well, Kevin, if you're using both your town R and my town R, they are 60 apiece. You would right. still have you oh, would still have eighty PL to play with. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I may, I'll look I'll look more into it as we get closer. But yeah, it's gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'll it'll be ridiculous and stupid and fun and awesome. So, so yeah, uh, at least for me, I would say uh, preferred enemy seal of approval. Not that we officially have one, but if we did, <laughs> Apocalypse would totally get it. I, I will concur with that one. I had a ton of fun playing it and. If it wasn't for just carting that many models around, if if there was an apocalypse tournament, I know we talked about like we like friendlies more than the competitive events. I could see me going into an apocalypse thing if there was a weekend tournament that had an apocalypse option. Well, and I think by having this by having this game streamlined and faster, it makes the idea of having a like as long as you have the table space. Yeah, that's the big problem. That's the big thing. <laughs> but like, if you had a a like if you're running a convention, instead of having to be apocalypse have to be a two day affair that you set aside and like, uh, well, if you're playing in this, you can't play in anything else. 
you could do the thing where like, for example, Renegade has their, like they do the cutoff after day one. You could have a Sunday apocalypse game for people who want to like, Oh yeah, you want to play, you want to throw you however many PL into your, into an apocalypse army or just have it as a, as a side event without having to make it, you know, just make it an afternoon thing. You could even, they even have rules for like, or suggestions for like, what if you had multiple apocalypse like multiple apocalypse games going on at once as part of one like massive like kind of like team type thing. So they support that and it, for tournament organizers, for event organizers, this version of apocalypse I think works much better as something that can be scheduled into the rest of a con instead of having to have the rest of the con built kind of around it, which no offense to the guys that run Siege World like that their apocalypse game is fantastic and awesome. I had a blast <laughs> last year, and I don't know if they've. I don't think they've decided yet whether they're doing old or new. I think they might be doing the last hurrah of old apocalypse for this year. But I think that you could actually make this a, a thing that a, a you could build into a larger event, no problem. Or uh, making it part of an ongoing like an, if you making it part of like an urban conquest narrative campaign, it's actually feasible as like, Oh yeah, we're just going to this afternoon. We're going to finish up with an apocalypse game and you could literally do it in an afternoon and still have it work. So I love it. I think it's great. And I think that pretty much wraps up uh, our main subject. So a little bit of hobby progress. Um, I know Dennis and I have both been working on stuff for our respective <laughs> armies for show me showdown, which this episode will probably be coming out either that weekend or just after, depending on how quickly I can get it edited. Uh, but um, yeah, I've been fit painting up Shadow Sun and a bunch more shield drones. Doing a, I'm doing a few spot repairs on my uh, where the paint chipped off on my uh, town are because when I took it to Siege World, I hadn't sealed it yet. I committed a great <laughs> painter sin. So I'm going to touch it up and seal it before I take it to Show Me Showdown. I also took the time to scrape off the really crappy basing material I had on my Fire Warriors from like a dozen years ago when I first painted models for 40k. And my I thought the height of basing was dipping my bases, like painting my bases with, with Elmer's glue and dipping them into like model train ballast. And I thought that was so quick and clever and it looks like crap and it ch chips off. So I've redone them all with like texture paint. And uh, so they look much better now. So and the, the whole army will look cohesive because I have to have something that keeps me out of dead last at show me showdown and damn it. It will be my painting score again. <laughs> um. So most of what I've been working on hobby wise is actually also for uh, show me showdown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> after the, uh, after Midwest conquest, uh, Nathan Martin, the guy who's uh, the TO for show me showdown approached me and asked uh, to do some uh, prize support for them. So uh, there will be a Primaris bolt gun, just like we had for uh, our event as well as a uh, power sword that I 3d printed and sent to him and he painted up. So, um, I think he's posted pictures of the bolt gun. I don't know if he's posted pictures of the power sword yet, but it, it was fun to work on. It was a good project. And I've also been working on a few other random projects. I'm working on a prize for Midwest Conquest for next year uh, to 3D print, and I'll hopefully have more to share on that in a little bit as soon as I 
reprint the part that melted today. Uh, and then I've also been playing around with the contrast paints, trying to figure out my Alpha Legion paint scheme that I've been kicking around for like four years. And uh, I, I was using the um, uh, Akeleth green or whatever the hell they call it. And I was using it over like a lead belcher spray. And I think it came out really good. I posted some pictures on my uh, on my Instagram uh, with it. So I think that's probably what I'm going to go with uh, going forward to try to get that kind of uh, metallic uh, bluish green color for my Alpha Legion. And it, hopefully it'll be quick and easy to paint. Well, I will get to my contrast paints after Show Me Showdown is done because I have um, these Havocs to paint for my Slanesh army. Um, but until Show Me Showdown is done, it's finishing up the Orion. Had some airbrush issues, uh, like where nothing came out. So with Rob's help and looking at tutorials and totally taking apart the airbrush, I got it working again. Yay! Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not as... Uh, it, it doesn't feel as good as it did when I first got it, so I might still have some cleaning I need to do, but I got enough to at least get part, more parts of the Orion painted because I'm painting the wings separately, and then I'll glue them on, so I need to get them done so they have time to glue on and set before Saturday. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's kind of like Rob. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do my simple basing, so after I get even the Ryan down, I'll just put my simple basing on the Custodes army. I have all the other people painted, so it's just getting the Orion and getting the basing done and having fun. I got to play around a little bit with contrast paints. Did a kind of test model on a Broodlord that I had just kind of in a box somewhere that I'd never really used, or he had just been primed just like a flat gray. So I actually went over him with some of the, the race bone uh, base color in the, in the spray, uh, leaving a little bit of the gray underneath to kind of Zenithal the highlight, the, the model. And then went over it with some skeleton horde and some red. Uh, I forget what the, which red I used, but he came out pretty good. Uh, pretty happy with how he turned out. I, like I had a little initial problem with how I was using it because I was trying to use the contrast paints the way I use the wash, and that doesn't really work <laughs> <laughs> because it's a little too opaque for that. It I needed to just cover all of the area that I wanted instead of trying to just put it in the recesses like I do with the washes. So, but I kind of took like a second pass at it and, and figured out how to, how to get that to work better. And then I, I also finished up uh, a project that was painting a mini that is a surprise for someone. So I won't really say who it who uh, what model it is but uh, just yet but i got that all done i just need to seal him yeah i think whoever gets whoever it is that is going to get this model that we will not name i think will really enjoy the model that we cannot tell you what it is to the person <laughs> that we can't tell but it, no i think they'll enjoy it <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll get some some good try and get some good pictures of, of both of those models that i got painted in the last couple of weeks 
Well, I think that mu- pretty much wraps up the show. Uh, next episode is our 200th episode. 200 of of these things that we've done for the past like eight some years. Uh, so it's that long. Uh, it's it has been, it has. We've done this through at least. If you include four editions of of 40k, because we started with fifth and sixth, and then seventh, then eighth, four editions of 40k, two or three different versions of Apocalypse, two or three different versions of Kill Team or Kill Team derivatives, years of no codexes, and then years of all the codexes. Uh, so many price hikes. So many price, <laughs> including the one that just happened. It's just like old times again. Um, yeah. And if you wanted to buy uh, contrast paints online, you can't because they're all sold out as they wait for a new batch to be formulated. And even if you do, as Kevin can attest, you shouldn't. Yeah, I had a. <laughs> I I don't know what happened. So like we talked about when the contrast paints came out, they they did the online sale where you can like mix and match and make your own, and like that's really cool and. Rob got his in like a nice little like package. It's like here's your you well, know I bought your mine set at of the paints. store. I didn't well, order yeah, mine you, online. Okay, yeah. So you bought it at the store, so that's part of it. Like, but here's a little thing. It's like build your own. Here's a little. Okay. I got mine, and it came in a uh, uh, a plastic bag like that they had just dropped all the paints in, and the uh, the flesh tears uh, red had leaked out, had like opened up and spilled. So the plastic bag is coated in red. But the <laughs> funniest part is the corners of the package had like red spots on them as well. So I'm pretty sure I'm on a watch list now because of that. (laughs) (laughs) But I was able to reach out and let them know and they, they fixed it and like they sent me a new one, but (laughs) yeah, they're, they're really good about that. You know, GW, if, if you can say absolutely nothing else about GW, I think you can say a lot that's very positive about them. Uh, especially these days, uh, they've yeah. always had fantastic customer support. If something goes Absolutely. wrong with one of their products, they will fix it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, so episode 200, 150 episodes with Kevin because you came in on episode 50, but 200 right. episodes for the rest of us old timers. Uh, but uh, yes, so that that should be a fun one. We're looking forward to it. So until then, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and remember with Apocalypse, go big or go home. But please, go big. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.